When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana-Harrington, joined in the easternly direction by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston, my other co-host. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm, I'm ready to talk about uh, CM Punk and Dr. Chris Amon's trial. Um, we are going to do a lot of that today. Yes. Did you have a good week? Um, yeah, sure. I had an okay week. I don't remember much of it, but uh, I'm here. How about you? It's been okay. It's been uh, a lot of stuff, but it was a short week, obviously, because uh, we, we taped on Monday, we taped on Sunday. Do we also tape on Saturday? I have I feel no like idea. I talked to you a lot last weekend. Who knows? We, uh, we, we this... talk to each other for about five to six hours per week. We do. This is the free show of WrestleNomics Radio. We have two shows each week. We do a WrestleNomics Radio free, which lasts usually between 45 and 90 minutes, and we mm-hmm. talk conclusively on one subject. Mm-hmm. This week it's going to be about the Punk Cabana Amon defamation slander trial. Yeah. And uh, libel, actually, because uh, it's in print. Ooh. And uh, the other part is on our subscriber show. We're going to be knocking out lots of topics. Do you want to give a preview of what those are going to be? Those are going to be the WWE and Fox deal. we got some details about the actual meeting that happened between WWE and Fox. And uh, I think CAA was involved as well. A WWE executive senior vice president has been fired. More on that incredible story. Uh, there was a documentary put out by WWE just the other day about uh, one Luke Harper and uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the results of a survey that we put out we we're trying to make some improvements to WrestleNomics Radio and Premium so all of that yeah, and if you want to participate in that survey show. go to tinyurl.com slash WR 2018 survey WR for WrestleNomics Radio 2018 survey at tinyurl.com and this quick little uh, eight question survey we have and we appreciate everyone who's filled out that data already. We're using it to improve the show. Hopefully, this show is coming to you in sterling audio quality. 
care of Zencaster. Yeah. Uh, helping us out with some new technology and some new investment here. And our premium shows are only $5 a month. And what do we use that money for? We use it for stuff like new microphones and we use it for stuff like new ways to connect with each other and record better shows. So mm. thanks to everybody who joined us in May. We uh, had a big jump in our subscriber numbers. So again, TV deals are good for us. That's what we learned. Yes. George, George needs to negotiate even more TV deals. And in fact, uh, he'll be negotiating the UK and uh, India deals sometime soon as well, or at least probably finalizing them. But you're recording with my former microphone right now, aren't you? Yes, a big how, box showed up with this deconstructed audio equipment, and yeah. I spent all morning here trying to latch it on to my TV tables in my living room here. Were, were there so like washers my living room and... between two, uh, between my poodle and my schnoodle, oh my and uh, in my big comfy chair, and. Uh, we're trying this out. It's it's different. But in the box itself, weren't there like various washers and nuts and bolts that were just jangling around randomly in the box? Yes, I, I have six extra pieces I do not know what to do with. Yeah, I didn't so. know what to do with them either. So I figured I would give them to you to see if you could figure out something to do with them. <laughs> okay. I got so worried that I didn't know what I was doing by the fact I ended up with all these extra pieces. Well, what happened one time is I, I like I disassembled it to, I think, to hang my other microphone on the um on the arm. And then when I went to put that microphone back on the arm, I didn't know what was going on, and I had these extra pieces left. But it still kind of worked, so I just sort of set them off to the side. And then, of course, at Unshot, I disassembled the entire thing and just shipped it off to you to deal with. Yes, but it will do. It's good. Yeah. Uh, we're talking CM Punk, Christopher Amon, and uh, Colt Cabana. They have a lawsuit. It has finally gone to trial. It is happening in Cook County, Illinois. Yeah. And a uh, 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 Convoclave of people have kind of come through to be covering this trial. Day one, two, three, and four, of course, short and weak because of Memorial Day. So day one, things kicked off. We had a reporter from the Chicago Tribune named Gregory Pratt. He's on Twitter at Royal Pratt. He uh, he's an actual news reporter, a real media guy, and uh, he's someone I actually talked to last time I was in Chicago. And a uh, real nice guy, real interesting. He's done some work. I remember when Bobby Heenan died, he went through the effort of trying to track down all the people that were on the card the night that Bobby Heenan got shot at by somebody. And it was reported in the news and trying to find other people to kind of verify that whole wrestler story. That allegedly happened able... in Chicago. Is that the, the deal there? I think it did. Yeah. yeah. So that was a that was an interesting story that he did a while ago. So every now and then he'll do wrestling stuff. But he's a he's actually a city hall reporter for Chicago Tribune. Mm -hmm. So he stopped in and he watched some of the the uh, things that were happening in the defamation case on day one. In day two, uh, Russell Zone, which uh, WrestleZone.com, which uh, I believe is now a sub site for mandatory.com. Russell Zone is doing uh, some great work on this. They're, they've actually been pretty much finding a way to get a reporter in the courtroom every day. And so between Nick Houseman and uh, what is it, Ross Berman, something mm -hmm. like that, I think yep. is the other guy's name. Yep. Ross W. The two Berman of them the fourth. have been coming in. So uh, we really appreciate that because they've been doing a great job of, of doing kind of a comprehensive look at what is being said every day in the trial. And in written form, it is a little cold and boring. But in historical stakes – Short of actually getting the transcripts of this trial, this is some of the best stuff you can get because yeah. it's really explaining beat by beat what the jury is hearing. I, I found the notes. The key. I found the notes fascinating to read. I, I ate them up. I think they are again, good. I, I think it's good that they are mostly show. without comment. They're just mostly reporting what's happening mm -hmm. because it's it's if you're not a lawyer, it's very easy to interpret things very incorrectly. 
Yeah. And so there are certain procedures and kind of steps that happen. And you have to make sure that you go through those steps. So, for instance, after uh, the plaintiffs finish their case, the uh, defense made a motion. And I think it's I think it was written up as a direct to verdict. I think it's actually called like a directed verdict. Um, I might be getting that backwards, but basically that the defense stands up and says, we don't think they've made enough of a case. Judge, do you want to throw this out? Mm-hmm. And the judge says, no, mm-hmm. then the defense has a chance to do their defense, their side. And then they can, again, kind of make this, we don't think there's enough of a case. Can you throw this out? But if you don't do it the first time, you can't do it the second time is what I was told. Mm-hmm. So there, there are situations like that where as a lay person, you might think, oh, the judge thinks this is a great case. But no, it's just that's the procedure that they go through every time in these kind of trials. But you have to do one set of things before you can do a different set of things. So it, it is there's a lot of legal machinations, as I like to say, mm-hmm. that are going on with this. So yes. um, behind the scenes, there's clearly other things happening between the judge and the lawyers and the plaintiffs and the defense. Yes. You might even say we're about to do some armchair detective work here. We're doing armchair lawyering for sure. Um, it was intriguing. I think it's good to kind of start us off by saying, what is this case about? And um, I think anyone who's listening to WrestleMics Radio probably has listened to the CM Punk podcast. It was big when it hit because it was it was full of, of piss and vinegar, as uh, one might say. It, it was it was raw. It was quick. It was off the cuff. It was. Uh, his version of honesty. I'm not going to say it was truthful, but it was honest from him. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think he was very sincere in everything he was saying, even if it was hyperbolic at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and this ended up rattling one of the people who is is indirectly mentioned a lot in this podcast by Mr. Christopher Amon, who's a doctor. He works for WWE. He is kind of the ringside doctor. He's the ringside physician. I think his title might even be like senior ringside physician. Yeah. Um, he uh just to just to also clear up at some point here we might refer to WWE's lawyer which is a Scott Amon as strange as it sounds i do not think the amons are related right they like do we, not we, appear we to be related that. to each yeah. other i know i had a guy who dug into this and kind of looked at you know kind of genealogical or not genealogical records genealogy records and basically said it doesn't look like the two families are related to each other. And it's just a weird coincidence that there's two guys named Amon at the same thing. And they're both like high up, high enough up executives that one would be filing paperwork on the other. Well, they're so, not executives, right? No, they're not executives. But, well, the lawyer is. Um, the lawyer is a lawyer who, he's, do we know that even counsel for, for WWE? Is he an employee he's, for WWE or is he just somebody... Who's on no, he's employed by WWE. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Amon is Amon is employed by WWE. And I went back and I listened to both podcasts. So if you remember at the time, this the, the first episode was released with no hype, no advertisement ahead of time. It was just dropped uh, on Thanksgiving morning in 2014. Um, do you remember where you were when you first heard the CM Punk podcast? I do because I was one of the first people in the world to hear it. Really, as weird as it sounds, yeah. I, for whatever reason, woke up at three in the morning that day. I couldn't sleep. And I went out to uh, the living room where I'm recording right now. And I noticed that this thing had dropped. And so I started listening to it. So I listened to it just Thanksgiving morning, like mere hours after it dropped. Mm -hmm. So it was like me and the Europeans were like the only ones to hear this at the time. Because everyone else, I think, was dead asleep. And, And then once everyone woke up, everyone tried to listen to it and the server crashed. 
Yeah, so I was able to listen to the whole thing right at right at the beginning without any problems. I think it might have even downloaded on my you know downcast or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it was a weird thing where, and I, I remember just being kind of in awe that this was happening and thinking, "Wow, this is really raw. This is really uh, interesting." But when you say the second podcast, what do you mean by that? So if you remember, they did do the first one, and then in the first one, they said that they were going to put out a uh, email. I think Colt puts out in the bumpers and oh, an email address right, yes. to, to ask for questions. And of course there were so many questions sent to the email address that the email address quickly was blown up as well and couldn't, uh, either they received so many questions they couldn't parse them or like they received so much traffic to the email address that the email address shut down. But, uh, I, I remember going to the Turkey trot here in Buffalo. And I think like hearing about this was out and, you know, I couldn't listen to it at first because, you know, the server had crashed. But eventually, I think probably finding a link on YouTube. And I did the turkey trot. Do you know what the tur- turkey trot is? You ever heard of the turkey like trot? Like a 5K race? Yeah, it's like a in, in the morning before uh, Thanksgiving. This is a tradition in Buffalo. Everyone goes downtown. Like thousands of people do this. They go and they do the turkey yeah. trot. And it's, yeah, it's like a 5K. And you either I know a lot of Rochesterians that either do a Rochester version of this or they go to the Buffalo one. I'm not sure which, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and I, I did the turkey trot while listening to this podcast, mm. um, and it was it was fascinating. Um, and it, so I listened to it again. I listened to both episodes just the other day, and I watched rewatched the uh, the Royal Rumble itself, the Royal Rumble match from 2014. Um, and I've got a ton of notes here. Where I, I think that I think that this podcast has a lot to do. Not, not, you know, not the main factor, but I think it has a lot to do with a lot of the problems around W's relationship with his audience and the Roman Reigns story that everyone's been dealing with basically ever since this podcast was, was dropped. Um, I don't know if we want to get into all that now, but... Uh, well, let's go through kind of the legal history before we, we go in to yeah. uh, the, the content of the podcast. Sure, so and, and I, so, I, I think we should mention here up front is one of the biggest things I took away from this is that Chris Amon is never mentioned at any point specifically named he's referred to perhaps i mean possibly referred to as doc scott amon is named at one point because when when uh, punk's talking about uh something around receiving his release or you know legal papers he's talking about legal stuff scott amon is referenced as a lawyer but chris amon is never named so. that's interesting and that that's also possibly you know, a good example where very few people are going to realize that the Amon that's referenced actually by name in this podcast is not, in fact, the same Amon. Yeah, and I was uh, under, you're under right. The royal he he. There's a uh, transcript from Cage Side Seats that was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's linked in my Fightful article, and then it says my royalty check is on the desk of Scott Amon, right? Who is their lawyer? And and I. So this podcast, again, this podcast happened, you know, three and a half years ago, and I was always under the impression of, like, I remember the question being raised about, well, did he ever name his name? But, oh, wait, there's that one time where he does mention Amon. But then I, I went and listened to it again, and, you know, with the background now of, like, we, we had this question raised before in some other situation where we were like, is, is Scott Amon, are Scott Amon and Chris Amon related? They're not related. Okay. But there's two Amons in the WWE. And that's the Amon that he's talking about when he says Amon. He's not talking about yeah. the doctor. But but let's be clear here. In the complaint that was filed in February of 2015 by Dr. Chris Fremon, he does not in any way imply that the reference the wrong Amon. He his all his stuff is about how did he deal with uh, the the so called lump? How did he deal with taking care of Punk? Did he 
know what he was doing? Was he competent? Yeah. This is and all about the, the lump, by the way. Arguments about, you know, did he Z-pack me to death and, and whatnot? Yeah. And yes, it is true that he does not say Dr. Christopher Amon. Now, Amon is using kind of the argument here very quickly that everyone right after listening to this started to point to him and say, that's Dr. Christopher Amon. Look at that. He's the guy. I'm going to chant Z-Pack at him. I'm going to tweet him on, on Twitter and and write to him. And that comes up in, in the trial here. Mm-hmm. So y- you could make a strong argument that the wrestling public did attach the story to Christopher Amon. Because by no means did Christopher Amon really respond all that publicly about it. Right. Uh, I think he did respond once or twice to Twitter people. He, he but, says in the testimony that I responded only to one tweet and like they have it quoted in there. I, I find I find this tweet very offensive or something like that is his only response. Yeah, but he says in testimony. You, you could make a pretty good argument that right out of the gate here, people did connect the story to Christopher Amon without him being involved. Right. So, I, I, I believe Punk was referring to him. He doesn't name him by either his first or last name. He only refers to him as Doc in the po- in the podcast itself. Um, but I think he is referring to Dr. Chris Amon. It's not totally clear, but I think fans deduced who he was, who Punk was referring to. And yeah, uh, and, and so. I mean, to the point that by the time he actually filed suit, people weren't like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? Everyone was like, oh yeah, that's the doctor referenced in that podcast, right? Right. So it, I, it's, it, of course, it's hard to go back three years and kind of put yourself in that pre mindset of, of all this stuff coming out. Uh, and that's been the challenge with this case is that being litigated in Cook County, Illinois, it is uh, being filed as a defamation and slander lawsuit. Um, it is uh, – I'm sorry, libel and slander lawsuit uh, and that they had, quote, falsely impunged the integrity of Amon as a medical doctor on Cabana's podcast and uh, he was looking for a con- – compensatory damages in excess of a million dollars, punitive damages to be determined at trial, and other such relief that the court deems just and appropriate. And the challenge with this is that the initial complaint was filed in February of 2015, and then there's a docket you can get to on the Cook County County, uh, courthouse for this case, which I've typed in so many times now, I have memorized 2015 L 001752. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just one of those numbers like 667 387 or whatever it was for the uh, WWE network number after they're first reported, where it gets ground into your skull and you just think of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that case was filed. And then the only piece of document we had pretty much for the longest time was this complaint, which did get uploaded to like all of the LexisNexis, Westlaw, et cetera, servers. And so that kind of filtered out. And then there was nothing. And we could see that there was activity in the case, um, but we couldn't see exactly what it was. And then suddenly in uh, about August of 2017, I realized that WWE had been pulled into this case through a Connecticut subpoena. Being that Punk basically subpoenaed WWE and says, give us all the records about how you guys responded to this podcast. And WWE resisted it. And so it eventually became a court case where then WWE said, well, it's going to be really expensive. It's going to cost us like half a million dollars for us to comply with this. And so they fought and fought and fought. And they eventually said, "Okay, it's going to cost us a quarter million dollars. And we think you should have to bear half of that cost. 
And then eventually the judge basically said, no, it's not reasonable for you to take all the expenses for um, all the money and time you spent fighting this this lawsuit to be part of your estimate for how much it costs. And instead, Punk, I think, ended up paying somewhere between 25 grand and 40 grand. Um, I think the 40 grand is what Punk was was offering to pay at some point. And the real number ended up being very close to that. So I think it was 40 grand, but I'd have to check on the Connecticut website. So why do you think uh, Punk, Punk's side wanted all that information? He wanted like email communication about the podcast, right? Do you think it's because he thinks WB had some communication a- around the story about, yeah, let's give him, let's give Dr. Amon legal help here? Well, I mean, all the things that they said that they wanted to hear about was a WWE.com article in February 20th, 2015 that says WWE addresses CM Punk allegations. Uh, anytime the art of wrestling was mentioned, any decisions, agreements, or undertaking by WWE to pay or reimburse Dr. Amon or Dr. Amon's counsel for the legal fees, communication about Brooks' alleged staph infection or treatment or Brooks' potential concussion diagnosis or treatment, medical files or evaluations of Brooks, personnel files on Brooks or Coke Cabana, because, of course, Cabana used to work for them, formal or informal disciplinary complaints or other communications about Dr. Amon, malpractice insurance policies for WWE, announcements or statements by Dr. Amon with respect to live or recorded WWE performances or matches on podcasts, including scripts, instructions, notes, and outlines, protocols, guidelines, procedures for WWE concerning medical evaluation, diagnosis, treatment regarding concussions and or infections for WWE, the wrestlers, and the uh, procedures for dispensing antibiotics, painkillers, and other medications, all the footage and photograph from the 2014 Rumble, all the photographs um, for Punk between October 2013 and January 2014, and any footage of statements made by Amon at any time that relate to, to Punk or uh, Cabana. So that's what they asked for. And so essentially what they're trying to get at is I think everything from is Amon a, a limited purpose public figure or a public figure, meaning he would be a lot more – it's a lot easier to get around a libel suit because if you're a public figure, it's much, much harder to get damages on. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether, you know, WWE is funding the lawsuit secretly, which was something that's been alleged a lot, but, you know, has never actually been proven. Uh, there That what Amon said and what the company said, and then did, was the company, was there any evidence of negligence in the way that Punk was treated? What was their policies around medical stuff, etc.? So they asked for a lot. Do we know so, who the lawyers are that, who are representing Amon here? Like where that lawyer's from? Yeah, or even their names, so you can, I don't know, Google them and see if they're associated with WB in some form. Uh, I've looked. No, it doesn't look like they are. I mean, Deutsche, Levy, and Engel is the law firm. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, no, I think it's just a Chicago law firm. Okay. But it, I, I think, think that doesn't think rule out have, that WB could be funding this in some way, though. People believe that. Yeah. I I think it doesn't I rule think it this out. That's gr- what I'm saying. Yeah. I think this is a great example of where wrestling reality and reality reality meet, which is um, we learned that Peter Thiel was funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuit. Now, Mm -hmm. that is bombshell bizarre news, right? Mm -hmm. That this Silicon Valley billionaire would also be like, I want to get revenge on this website. And so I will pay for a wrestler's lawsuit against this website. Mm -hmm. That's bizarre. So that didn't come out for a very long time. So it's perfectly reasonable that, yes, WWE could be somehow helping with this. On the flip side, wrestling is full, filled with conspiracists. Mm-hmm. And even the wrestlers are conspiracists mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard for me to say, oh, well, just because the boys all say, yeah, WWE is secretly behind it doesn't mean that is true. And the mm-hmm. problem is you get people like agents who are 
kind of in management for WWE, but still retain those old wrestler mentalities. So, it, you know, even when someone said, oh, well, The Rock, when he tried to call CM Punk from the ring, if you recall that scene from Fighting With Our Family that they taped. Yeah. And, you know, someone was like, oh, no, we're suing him. And then somebody else was like, no, we're not suing him. Dr. Ahmad is suing him. I don't take that to be proof the way that, you know, a lot of other people do, just because I think very few people are actually involved in this lawsuit. And the decisions up at the top, we don't really have visibility to that. Yeah. And so it's just some, you know, people surmising from very small details in my mind. But yes, there is a, a possibility that that WWE is involved. I do feel like that would have come out by now. Yeah, it, it's a very op- it's a very opaque industry. And in if there was evidence of that, that they got conclusively. Are you saying that there may be some agents who are sources? I don't even know. Oh. I don't even know. But so this case started and the reason i mentioned this big subpoena case is a whole bunch of the the illinois documents got filed as part of the connecticut case and so we actually got a copy of uh, a version of the the lawsuit we got a version of the um responses to the lawsuit both by cm punk and by colt cabana um you know cabana's defense has been that it's a meritless lawsuit and this is what he filed in June of 2015. Uh, the statements on the podcast were not uh, defamatory and that um, it, that for the purposes of the podcast, Amon should be considered a limited purpose public figure. And you cannot dis- demonstrate that there was actual malice uh, to to uh, substantiate the, can- the claims of defamation and that uh, Cabana should have what they call neutral reporter privilege, which means that um, as long as you do not espouse or concur with the statements or deliberately uh, act to distort the statements to launch a personal attack of your own, that you're just reporting what somebody else said. You're not you're not saying, yeah, that's true and I can prove it. Um, And again, to to, to comment on that, like there's Cabana presents himself in the in the episode. I mean, everybody knows that they're friends and they're close. And, uh, he, but he does like present himself as like, I'm going to try to play devil's advocate a lot here and, and stuff like that. He, for whatever that's worth, he kind of tries to present himself in that way. And he does kind of question punk in that way at times. He tries to put himself in the, in the shoes of somebody who's, who's, you know, hate tweeting punk or something like that, or saying, talking to, to punk about how you, 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 we bought your house and things like that, or trying to present the WB point of view, um, there, there's a lot of empathy from him, though, too, and and Cabana had his own experience and, with WWE that that uh, I think influences him in how uh, he felt about the whole thing. And and in fact, in in the lawsuit from Amon, he points to a few times when he's like, "Yeah," or "It had teeth," or other statements he said that he's saying, "Well, now you're acting as someone who is validating what what Punk said, mm-hmm. not as a person who's a informal reporter." Yeah, like you're you're adding your own commentary, thus proving you're part of this conversation. You're not just reporting on it. Yeah, there's there's um, definitely comments like from Cabana where they're talking, where he sort of references Vince as I don't know if it's out of touch, but he references Vince as Vince in his stubborn ways is definitely a comment that comes from Cabana in, in the in the episode. Yeah. Um What's also important to remember is that there are standards legally for what is, you know, defamation, libel, et cetera. And so it it usually involves kind of this three-point test about falsity, harm, and a lack of adequate research to truthiness. So that those are the three standard things that have to be shown. So falsity, it's not true. 
again, truth is always a defense. If they can prove that, you know, he was negligent, that's a defense. Uh, second, harm being that you can, you actually have to show that these statements in some way harm the person. And we'll get to that in a second about what, what are they saying in the case about the harm? And then third, lack of adequate research to truthiness, which is you can't just take a rumor and say, okay, here it is. I'm publishing it. You actually have to show you, I made some effort here to, to see if, if, you know, I could substantiate any of this. Now, if you are a public figure or a limited purpose public figure, you also have to improve malice. Actual malice is the technical term, meaning you meant to make this, you know, a problem. So it's a much higher standard if you're, if they're a public figure or a limited purpose public figure which I think limited purpose public figure means for a certain situation, you're considered a public figure, but normally you would not. So only some things are in bounds in a sense. So is Dr. Um, Mon a limited purpose public figure in this case? My understanding is they ruled and they found that he is not a public figure or a limited purpose public figure. So the defense they can't use is, oh, well, here's an example of him being on WWE.com or here's, an, here's a time that he uh, uh, made a statement and was on television. They're not they, the the judge, I believe, ruled and said, no, he's not a public figure or a limited purpose public pi figure. So this actual malice piece is not part of the test because he has been put on TV in angles to like, here's a comment from from the doctor in like NXT things and maybe even main yep. roster W things. He has appeared on TV for like yep. a quick but, interview. But the judge made the ruling that he is not considered a public figure or a limited purpose public figure for the purposes of this lawsuit. OK. And, and, you know, just because you are related in that one situation, that doesn't necessarily mean, okay, now you're a public figure for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, my understanding is the judge made that ruling. Now, I am taking that on the basis of a tweet that, that David Bixenspan made where he made that claim. And I have yet to find the true, true, true proof of that. So I don't know if that's information that Bix gathered in his own research or not. If that's not true, I would expect them to go much more down that alley of saying, here's our defense. He is not, he is a, a public figure or a limited purpose public figure and therefore actual malice had to be used and there's no malice here. Again, we're not hearing them use that kind of defense in the trial as far as I can tell. So I, I think that's one reason that that's not being used as a defense is because I do believe they found that Amon is not considered either of those things. Mm -hmm. So again, we're getting really technical here, but that's the, the basis of this. This is a, a lawsuit. And it is fought with legal terms and legal definitions of what is malice, what is defamation, what is slander, what is libel, et cetera. And so it's important to actually spend that time to, you know, understand it. Uh, uh, when Punk responded in August of 2015, he specifically denies that he falsely impunged the integrity of the plaintiff as a medical doctor. Um, he said the podcast quote speaks for itself and that he vigorously denies the characterizations of the various statements in the original complaint. Um, and then they offered a whole bunch of defenses for what he was saying. He was saying, okay, here, here's the list of defenses for why I shouldn't be sued. Number one, the First Amendment. Uh, allegedly false and defamation statements are, con are, are constitutionally protected expressions of opinion and therefore non-actionable under the First Amendment. Uh, number two, uh, a rhetorical hyperbole and imaginative expressive. So when he said he was a worthless piece of shit. Uh, that was just considered a loose figurative and rhetorical and or hyperbolic language constituting non-actual opinion. Um, and uh, uh, he 
the the multiple physicians. This is a big part of their defense. There is more than one WWE physician. I think they mentioned Larry Heck at one point. Yes. Uh, who's another WWE physician. So they're saying, I did not ever refer to Amon by name, and therefore you could assume I might have meant a different physician. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of his defense at the time was limited purpose public figure. And he said he voluntarily became a public figure in his own right, and he's given interviews to members of the media, and he's on Twitter, and uh, that his statements were not false or misleading, and he did not act with any malice. Uh, there's the no reasonable jury defense, which basically says no reasonable jury would uh, find that these statements were not substantially true. There's fair comment and criticism privilege, where he, he was saying the commentary concerning legitimate subjects of comment and criticism on the matter of public interest and concern, including topics on health and the safety of professional athletes and the treatment of concussions. So, you know, basically saying I'm telling my story so that you can talk about wrestlers as a whole and concussion protocol. Uh, unclean hands, basically saying that um, uh, he rep- he put the interests of WWE a be- above the medical interests of of Brooks and other patients, and that he uh, engaged in unprofessional, incompetent, or dishonest conduct in order to uh, help WWE's mission, and uh, that he violated his physician-patient confidentiality and he invaded uh, Punk's right of privacy in his complaint, and that uh, he. C- coordinated and conspired with the WWE in bad faith to prepare, bring and pursue this lawsuit for the embarrassment of the, because of the embarrassment, this podcast caused WWE, the absence of damages, basically saying, if there's no damages, you don't have a lawsuit. You can't sue because it it's, uh, you have to show you actually were harmed. It hurt his uh, feelings. Pro- he was angry and embarrassed as well as humiliated. Yes. Uh, saying there's harm, uh, due process, basically saying that, uh, that procedurally and substantive due process to the vagueness and uncertainty of the criteria for the imposition of presumed damages and that uh, uh, Ahmad continues to be engaged, meaning employed by WWE, and uh, WWE has publicly defended uh, Ahmad with respect to the challenge statements made by the podcast. So he, he you can't say that he necessarily lost his job or something. And well, that well, is one of the big things, punitive damages. One of the big things raised, I, I, I think I read early on, is that he was arguing that his uh, – malpractice premiums had raised because Mm -hmm. of this. This is not raised at all in the testimony, but we'll get to that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll get to the actual again, this is what the older filing said. And then lastly, the excessive punitive damages saying that uh, Colton conducted the interview with Brooks in good faith without any sort of malice or degree of fault. Colton's alleged conduct does not justify or warrant the imposition of sanctions to achieve the valid aims of punishment or deterrence. And any award of punitive damages would have a dangerous and substantial chilling effect on protected speech. So that was Punk's defense uh, when he filed it uh, originally, basically saying this is why you should throw the lawsuit out. And of course, we're in a trial now, so we know that they didn't throw the lawsuit out. Um, Amon did then say, here are my damages. If you're saying I'm, I'm not damaged, here it is. And he said, my malpractice insurance increased, uh, quote, 63%. They did, they quadrupled as deductible and the policy has less favorable terms, including without limitation, the elimination of his right to consent to settle any future claims and that other carriers declined to offer coverage to him as a result of the statements. Now, that is his filing. We don't have the reply to that filing necessarily. So it's hard to, you know, it, it, he's making the connection to say the podcast injured me. Here's an example of how my medical insurance is bad. It's because of the podcast. We don't know. It's a one for one. That needs to be proven still. Yeah. But that was the claim he made in the filing. He also said that he uh, suffered anxiety, stress, loss of sleep, weight and muscle mass and gain. Just, just real quick as, on, the, on, the, uh, on the premium. So quadrupled. Lo- loss of weight and 
muscle mass. Yep. Sorry. The, Go ahead. The, the premiums quadrupled, he said. That doesn't sound like in- incremental. Like, like the defense could argue that, oh, well, that's just... That's just a normal raise of your premiums. That doesn't mean that that it's related. I mean, yeah, qu- being quadrupled Dave sounds... made the claim that that well, maybe it was just the normal rate changes that happen year over year. Yeah. And again, when you are in a field like you know you're treating athletes, I imagine you're in a super specialized insurance carrier, and I think this one's called Hallmark Specialty Insurance Company. Not so, Lords of London. There's not always a lot of players in spaces like this. And so, yeah, it might have actually been a normal change for year over year for it to quintuple or quadruple. However, it does sound unusual to me. It does sound like someone who has reached different platform. And I'll say this. I used to work in, in insurance. I used to work for what they call non-standard auto insurance. Do you know what that is? Uh, insurance to cover car races and stunt races and things like that. I don't know. If only it's insurance for people that drink too much. So it's insurance for people that are considered high risk and that are very unlikely to continue paying their premiums for long periods of time. So as a result of that, you have an enormous attrition rate on that kind of thing. But what was funny to me was we would insure people that had lots of DUIs and DWIs and whatnot, but we would actually not insure athletes. Because it's considered an enormous risk to a company if you insure a public figure. Hmm. Because people become very litigious if they think a public figure is involved. Do I need to let all my insurance companies know that I'm a public figure? You're probably not a big enough public figure. But my what I was told basically is, is like figure. we found like an NFL player or something one time that was like doing something with us. And I, I, I believe we ended up not like continuing the policy. And part of it is is because there's kind of a, a a belief that people that are at a high profile like that are high risk because people are much more likely to, you know, engage or continue those lawsuits. They're not going to just settle them or you'll have to settle lots of lawsuits because people will just keep bringing them. Hmm. Um, and so there is an element that when you are in a specialized field or if you're being considered a, you know, in the spotlight media person, it is actually much more expensive to get insurance uh, as weird as that might sound. Um, so I, I, it's hard for me to say yes, 63% increase in, um, insurance premium, which is what he wrote in the filing, whether or not that's normal or not. Cause I don't work in that field. 63%. I can see arguments that's on not being quadrupled though. So what's that about? Well, deductible is what he said. Quadrupled his insurance premium ah. went up by 63%. Okay. Your okay. deductible again is the amount that you have to pay out of pocket before you claims are covered. Right. So, so I guess a 63% increase in, in the premium does sound is like the monthly, more is the monthly amount that you have to pay. Yeah, it, it does sound like more than an incremental raise. But what do I to me it does for yeah. sure, yeah. for sure. So it, it, it sounds like that's an example of harm to me. But for whatever reason, and, he doesn't yeah. seem to be pursuing this. Yeah. So it, it it sounds like he has a case to say I in the end found that my status with my insurance company was not as good. And I am blaming the podcast. Now, again, you can fight that. You can go through the whole thing and say, well, what other things happened to you last year here that could change it? You could bring on insurance adjusters, et cetera. And that could be why they're not pursuing this piece is because deciding what is reasonable or unreasonable is incredibly difficult and boring to juries. And that's not always where you want to hang your hat, right? Because you could go through a whole di- uh, deep thing of bringing in expert witnesses and arguing over what is reasonable. We've heard cases where coming out of um, 
you know, the Affordable Health Care Act that, you know, insurance carriers for certain small groups have gone way, way up year over year. So it's again, it's difficult to say, is that reasonable? Is it unreasonable? That's something that very few health economists really seem to have an agreement on. So one reason that this might not be being brought up is not because it's a bad argument, but it could just be it's too complex of an argument that that either side is willing to kind of uh, to 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 fight to the death on. It seems like the most substantial claim of damage, though. Yes and no. Um, what I would like to say is I'll just put it very simply. What matters is what the jury hears and what the jury is instructed to do. So the jury does not read filings. Hmm. The jury does not um, get to search the web and do independent research. Mm -hmm. The jury knows what they heard in that trial and what they heard in that courtroom and what was presented to them. And so if they can make it seem that Amon was injured enough and it was emotional damages or his anxiety or that his reputation was severely hurt and that's within the instructions for what they're allowed to give damages on, then they've done their, their case. So again, we don't know what the jury instructions are. We don't know what they're actually hearing everything word for word. Yeah. And we missed, so, we missed most of the first day, right? Which yeah. is an issue. So here. I mean, what you're doing is you're saying, if I was a juror, I would find this to be the most compelling thing, right? That's what you're saying when you say that's the most important piece. I, I guess it sounds like it would be easiest to convince a jury to, to pay somebody back if you could find that there was a real financial harm here as opposed to exactly. emotional Exactly. There's an economic harm. damage, and I can demonstrate it, and here's a policy that has changed adversely to me, and I think it's because of this. Yeah. That said, we don't know what these jurors consider to be emotional damage or other other harm to this individual. And so it could be that it's just going to be enough to say, look, you made me look terrible and my employer doesn't trust me and I'm in a terrible situation. Now, the defense has been so far, as far as I can read, no, you still have a job. You can't show any particular harm from the situations that you've laid out here. Yeah. And so that it's going back and forth. But again, it's what the jury thinks. The judge is there to help them rule on, you know, the legal issues of is this admissible? Is this relevant? Are you asking leading questions? Are you letting the person answer for themselves? Is this allowed? Is this not allowed? You know, here's the instructions to the jury about what the definition about what we're fighting over is. And does this meet that definition? But it's a jury that's going to make this decision. And um, the most Two most important parts of, of cases, especially like this, are the openings and the closings. The openings, you're going to set up what is it you're going to prove and why are you there. And the closing is the closing arguments where you're going to say, here's what you heard. Keep this in mind. This is why I'm right. And we have not heard the closing arguments and we missed some of those opening arguments, opening things. So I feel like everyone who is playing armchair lawyer like you and I, armchair barrister. Armchair detectives. Uh, we are at a disadvantage because, A, we haven't read what the final complaint that they decided to go with was, whether there's another one filed. B, we haven't seen all the motions that have been filed back and forth and back and forth. And C, we are not there in person to be able to see the way the jury deals with someone else. There's such a big difference. You know, you, you've had people probably where you talk to them on the phone and they come off one way, then you meet them face to face and they're completely different. And and so I do think the in-person nature of this testimony might be very different than how some people are are taking it on the back end. Mm -hmm. And so that that's my two cents on this whole case, which is 
I don't think Amon is in as terrible a position as some people think he is. That said, I don't think that he has been able to make a slam dunk to say, here's how I was harmed and I can prove it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my um, he did give an example also in this case uh, in the earlier filing where he said Kevin Steen, a.k.a. Kevin Owens, inquired specifically whether Amon committed the acts of a, of omission contained in the statements pr- published by Brooks and Colton. And uh, I thought that was interesting because that was it. That's another good example where if you can say, well, other WWE wrestlers don't want to be treated by me because they believe what you said. I do think that that is harmful to Amon's reputation. It, it sounds like, to speculate wildly, was there like some sort of issue between Kevin Owens, Kevin Steen, and um, Chris Amon where maybe he felt like he wasn't getting uh, good treatment and he, you know, wanted to know what the deal was? Maybe. I, I don't know. You know. I, I just mean like if, if someone tells you, hey, this doctor's terrible and uh, your friend says, I almost died and this doctor did nothing to help me. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine then that you might actually say, hey, I don't know if I feel comfortable with this doctor. Right. And, you know, the doctor is in a weird place because there is a certain level of confidentiality that's expected there. Right. So it's not like he can be like, no, that's not true. Uh, I treated him great. And, you know, here's the records to prove it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in the sense, this lawsuit is also helping them, you know, I think for him kind of try to prove his case to say, look, I didn't do the wrong things. I wasn't negligent. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of argument over the lump. You know, I heard people call it lump gate or lump trial. Yeah, this is all about the uh, lump. It, we're, we're, well, we're, it's somewhat. I, we, I think, I think there's go a this lot testimony. of different things that he's saying that he was he was. Amon feels that he was defamed on purpose and that they said he was a bad doctor and he was negligent. And they use the lump as an example of this. But they also talk about concussion and other protocols, antibiotics and z packs, and it jumps around. So I don't feel like it's just the lump. The lump is just a symptom of the larger um, negligence that they're alleging. Yeah. Are we going to go through or deficiency th- of care? Are we going to go through this testimony day by day or like what do you want to do here? Well – so in the end, uh, WWE handed over a whole bunch of documents to CM Punk and all of – and uh, to CM Punk's counsel at least. I don't know if, if – uh, I would imagine Cabana's counsel would also get it because they would say it's it's relevant to their case and so it should be given to them as part of discovery. Mm-hmm. So um, in the end, you end up with two sides, right? You have, you have uh, Colt Cabana's lawyer – and you have CM Punk's lawyer. And from what we can tell, they are not on the same law, uh, law teams, legal teams. And it goes back and forth about whether or not uh, the two of them are being friendly to each other. You know, like they say on the, on day one or day two, it didn't even seem like they were talking to each other. And then on a later day, they were, you know, conversing with one another. Right. This is amid so, rumors about whether or not they're friends anymore. Punk. And yeah. Punk. And so – I think what we're also seeing is that the lawyers in this case suddenly figured out, oh, my God, media is going to cover this. Mm-hmm. And they figured out, like, they told the guys, everything you do is going to be scrutinized. So I want you guys to be as, I don't even know, cordial, I guess, as possible. You know, do everything in your power to help make yourself look good. Because while this court, while this case is, is decided by a jury and not the media, it will have other ramifications on them for sure. In in what way? Is like the, the jury going to look at uh, Russell's own? 
well, I would say more like UFC and WWE are going to look at Russell's own. So I'm sure UFC cares a lot about how CM Punk is portrayed in this. Mm. Um, and on top of that, I'm sure that, you know, just in general, these lawyers realized it's much better for us if our our defendants here come off in a good light rather than in a bad light. Well, there's, there's and, moments uh, here, too, where they're they're laughing and goofy. I mean, not just with each other, but while there's testimony going on. Uh, were they? Yeah, I mean, there, there's some cases here where like, uh, punk punk kind of laughed out loud when he talked about the podcast, and they listened to it to the jury, and he, he said uh, something. E- and like, Eaton, uh, Mark Eaton, the former bell ringer, the timekeeper, is uh, doing you know his video testimonies being played, and he makes a comment about how oh I, I've uh, since I left, I've I've blocked the whole company out of my mind, and and punk laughs loudly. Uh, the notes say, um, so there's things like that. Um, and I've, I've, yeah. I've, uh, I've heard some people be critical of like, why, why are they joking around so much? So, yeah. if, so my point is like, if they have been told by their lawyers to come off looking great, they're, they're doing some other things that I don't know, at least some people don't think they make themselves look great by doing. Well, but I think, I think it really matters on whether or not you think that this is like, I, I did something terrible and I have to be ashamed of this podcast or if you're trying to say, look, this is a lighthearted, hyperbolic podcast about how upset I was at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was not meant to be me defaming this guy. Mm-hmm. And if I treat it with great sincerity and seriousness in some way, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm taking a parody song and saying, this is high art. You have to, you have to treat this as love. You know, I, I, I just feel like they, in some ways, they're trying to be, they're trying to leave some realism about where they are with it. And so, yeah, there are some things that have come out with this that are interesting. Like my, my, uh, I said this before. So my wife is working as a law clerk right now for a judge. Mm -hmm. So she deals with trials, felony trials a lot. And this is not a felony trial. This is a civil trial right now. Uh, that should be important to mention too, that, you know, if they're convicted, it's going to be damages. It's not a, going to be a felony on them or something of that nature. Um, but uh, she was telling me one of the things that they're told specifically is that if you don't have anyone else in the courtroom there, especially, you know, not a, a felon and and no press, the lawyers are generally pretty nice to each other. You know, everybody sees it as them doing their job. And there are times that the lawyers and the judge and people will, I wouldn't say joke around, but, you know, they'll, they'll have they'll make small chat with each other. But what she was saying is that as soon as someone else enters that courtroom, you're supposed to shut up. You're supposed to stop doing that because there is easily a public perception that you're not taking things seriously if you seem to be in any mood except for completely somber all the time. <laughs> okay. I'm serious. Yeah. So, so it's it's funny you say that because it's like, yeah, like there's that joke. There's that stuff in there about suspenders. You know, remember when suspenders were in? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I, that, that sounds familiar. Yes. Yeah. So uh yeah, so after a pre-trial discussion between the counsel on suits, do you remember when suspenders were in and they were just talking to each other? And and she she pulled out that tiny little bit and was like, yeah, that's the sort of banter that you hear all the time between lawyers. But you, you're not supposed to kind of show it to the public because the media and other people sometimes interpret it very differently. Mm-hmm. And again, like for some of these people, this is just their job. This is going to work. And yeah, does it mean they don't care about their client if they make small talk or are friendly? No, that's part of, you know, that's the the buddy-buddy nature of the legal profession, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these people are going to see each other all the time. Most of these, many of these lawyers are familiar to the judges. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, it, it's, 
for everyone else, it is their worst day usually to be in court. But, you know, for lawyers and judges, this is every day. Yeah. So it's very routine. Mm-hmm. And I think we forget that sometimes about, you know, what we expect from people. And you can see, just like those comments you shared, how people interpret any kind of frivolity or levity in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other piece I'd make is just um, there is a line in here where it says that a juror got into the elevator with the lawyers. Yeah. My wife freaked out when she saw that. Oh, really? She said that was terrible. <laughs> she said what that should happen in those situations is the judge should bring in the attorneys to their office and scream at them. Because that opens up a bunch of liability. You could go for a mistrial. You could go for a ju- jury uh, replacement. Now, the judge always has the right to just listen to the arguments and make a decision. This is as all parties so, were leaving, a bald juror in a black shirt entered the elevator with Amon's lawyers, Colt and Colt's lawyers. Yeah, so that was inappropriate. That's that's the simple part about it is that they, he should not have gotten the lawyers should have known that and said, oh, we, we shouldn't ride the elevator with you, sir. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not appropriate for jurors to be with the lawyers outside of the courtroom mm-hmm. before a case is done. It is. And so I'm not saying it's a mistrial. It's definitely not. They have alternates. They can just put a different juror in mm-hmm. it. Most likely nothing happened. And so there was no – unless those lawyers are idiots, if those lawyers were talking about the case when the, uh, the juror was in there, they would – that would be a huge issue. The should judge the bald should be screaming juror at and them. the black shirt be replaced? Yeah. But um, w- we don't know anything happened. And it's not illegal for them to be in the same elevator. The point is that it, it creates that opportunity for there to be tampering, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. or for there to be information that is not being presented in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Or for that juror to say or do something that's inappropriate, you know, <laughs> hey, I think you guys are winning, whatever, <laughs> you know, that would be wrong. So yeah. my guess is it's just someone who doesn't want to be there and he's just trying to leave. But you can see little things that, you know, lay people are not going to know. Hey, is that appropriate or inappropriate? Jurors, I mean, sorry, lawyers should always know. Yeah. And so it was wrong. And so I, I don't want people to overblow it and make it seem like, oh, God, you know, this it's a mistrial. No, it's not a mistrial. They can just replace the juror. That's not hard. There's alternates. But it is a good example of the lawyers in this case are not perfect. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And, you know, the other thing my wife said, which was funny, is she said, the one thing I didn't realize is when, when, the, ju- when the lawyers go out with the judge into some, you know, into a back room, they will scream at top voice to each other. They they are not above yelling at each other. And so there's that line in here where it says something about raised voices are heard. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm trying to find it. Or screaming. And she's like, that sounds very real. Yes. Uh, Judge calls counsel into the hallway where indistinct shouting is heard. Yes. And so I thought that was funny. And she also was like, yep, that is very normal. Like that is not don't like, again, if you're not around this every day, this might seem like, oh, my God, people screaming at each other. They must have really screwed up. It's like, no, lawyers love to do this. That's Mm -hmm. that's in their nature. And that's not uncommon in the slightest. Yeah. So she she didn't think she didn't read into that as, oh, my God, things are not going well or going well or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can see somewhat. Like if you're really following this, you can see somewhat 
reasons why each side does not want certain evidence introduced in the way that it's being introduced. Um, so let's just kind of quickly go through each of these days. Yes. Uh, I don't want to sit here and read day for day. I want to tell people if they want to read it, go to WrestleZone.com and and give the clicks, give the uh, you know, give the attention to what uh, Nick Hausman and uh, Ross is it Bergman or Berman? I don't remember which. Uh, what have we got here? Yes, Berman. Berman. What they did, you know, because they they took the time to report on this and they deserve the credit. And the same with um Gregory Pratt from the Chicago Tribune. They they deserve the credit. And so it annoyed me it, like hell when Dave Meltzer talked about, oh, I, I heard about these. This is what happened today in the trial. And, and you know, I heard it from people that were there. Yeah. And I was like, Dave, where do you hear it from? Uh, there's only he, he specifically, you know, uh, uh, Gregory Pratt said I was the only one there. And the next day, uh, Nick Hausman showed up and he's like, they, they, they had me announce myself to the courtroom who mm-hmm. I was and why I was there. Uh, and so it's like. Yeah, unless your source was an eighth grader on a tour, there's really only like five people that could have given you that testimony. So either it came from Colt Cabana and his lawyer, which is actually possible. I think Colt and Dave talk. Or it came from more likely reading the Russell's own coverage. Yeah, I don't think so, uh, Dave got any. Uh, yeah, so I was a little annoyed when Dave in one pace didn't seem like he was crediting Russell's own or, or Hausman or Berman because it is – it's unscrupulous to pretend that you just get magic sources in the courtroom as if there's a way to get this de- level of detail without someone physically showing up and enduring the eight hours of sitting there. Yeah, and I don't, know, I don't think it's Dave's intent. No food and drink and so forth. I don't think it's Dave's intent to make it sound like he has inside sources or so that you got, got this from somewhere else. It's just I think he's just in the habit of not crediting. He's so in yes. that habit. And he comes, and he comes from he comes from a place where he, he comes from a place where he's doing a, a, a newsletter that really just started out as like a, a letter to a bunch of fans that were you know who wanted his letter and and that's here we are in 2018 and I, I don't know if it's supposed to be journalism or if it's still a fanzine or what it is. Yeah, so I I love Dave. I really I respect him a lot. I just it just annoys me when something like this happens when it'd be like there really was only one person who took the time and effort to do this yeah. and. I have spent an enormous amount of time and effort trying to cover this case. And, you know, if I had not covered that Connecticut case, I feel like 90% of the stuff that we knew before this trial started would not have come out, right? Mm -hmm. Like someone had to bother to go do it. And I don't think it's like, oh, great, let's give Chris a bunch of credit. It's more like, why the heck is no one else spending the the 10 minutes to, to search this stuff, to look for this stuff? It's out there. You can spend your time reading the pleadings. You don't have to rely on people distilling it for you all the time because when they distill it, they often get it wrong, including myself. Yeah, we need more armchair detectives is what you're saying. Well, we need more people who are willing to look at original documents. So I was glad that, you know, that that they set it up for people to go to Chicago and do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, this case is very interesting. And I think it has light. It has ramifications on what is uh, a podcast liability on reporting on someone in in uh vaguely and having mm-hmm. someone bury them mm-hmm. you know bury the organization bury them and yes. what is your liability when that happens you've had a warning is... about some of my more outrageous comments <laughs> yeah so it's it's really interesting to me and again it's it's uh also what is the liability about what's the relationship between independent contractors and a big organization what's the relationship between a medical staff that is there to treat independent contractors and are they your doctor or are they something else? Yeah. 
So can we you talk about? Do you want to talk about the lump, or you just do we want to leave it alone? All right. So day one, Amon testifies, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we don't have all the details here, but they do. We do know that the jury listens to the whole podcast. Mm-hmm. We know that um, Amon basically testifies that he did not know that this thing happened until the day of Thanksgiving, and he's super distraught when he hears it. Well, that's when it came out. That's when everybody found out about it. Yeah, but it's not like he heard about it a month later. Or, you know, he heard the day of Thanksgiving and he says it basically it bothered him a lot. He was miserable Mm -hmm. all day. Yeah. Right. Right. So in his mind, it's not something where people came back to him later on and said, hey, you're being buried on this. This should bother you. It was immediately he was upset. Mm -hmm. And and again, I I just think that's interesting that he heard it and he immediately thought of himself and said, you're 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 claiming I'm a bad doctor. And you can imagine if you are a professional at what you do, it is very insulting to have someone say that. Yeah. You know, you, you're taking an oath to protect people and you have someone come back and say, you're a corporate shill. You did it wrong. I almost died. And you're terrible at your job. When you put it in that light, it does make you upset. Now, their argument is that's not what the thrust of our, our discussion was. That's not who we were talking about. We never said it was you. But I do think you can understand why someone would be deeply offended by a person who is pretty powerful and has a big platform burying you and what you've devoted your life to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's lost sometimes here is that people really just want to kind of dismiss Amon. But I, 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 I feel for him. I really do. I don't know if he's right on being able to get damages from these people. I don't think he's right necessarily to bring Cabana in on this net. Mm-hmm. But I understand why he's upset. So on the first right. day, they well, hear there's... the whole podcast. So I, I do appreciate the fact that, you know, th- there's no lying. The jury hears everything. And it sounds like they're mainly just heard the first podcast. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I feel for him, but there's this there's clearly a disagreement about whether or not Amon saw the lump. I mean, that that's that seems to me like like you said earlier, there's, we, we don't know what happened in the beginning. We don't know what the opening arguments were. But a big, big issue in this case uh judging by the testimony is whether or not Amon saw the lump punk says at least on two occasions that he showed it to him one time in the fall of 2013 another time on the day of the royal rumble Amon, from what i gathered denies that he ever saw it ever once so that's that seems to be uh, the main issue here and then that's well, why it all these to be other the one that the defense is definitely concentrating on. I I do disagree a little bit that because where else do their stories not uh, agree? Uh, I think th- the idea that somehow he didn't treat him right because eventually we don't really ever prove that the lump is a MRSA, which right. is what he claimed. Right, right. right. I, I think that's that's being lost here too. Is that Punk made some bold claims about what this lump was? He MRSA said it was or MRSA. staff? Yeah. He said that it was very visible, and that there's no way you could miss it. He said that so he it, said was it was baseball sized, threat. but that it was under underneath. Size. But it was underneath his gear, right where the star would be on his gear, so just below the waistband. Um, he says it was MRSA or staff. He says that the physician's assistant who it turns out is a physician's assistant, not a doctor, as he says in the podcast that he was a doctor. And there's all sorts of stuff about, well, I think AJ Lee thought he was a doctor and told punk that he was a doctor. So punk believed that he was a doctor. We're talking about Patrick Duffy here, who turns out to be a physician's assistant. He's the one who cut open the lump for punk. Um, where was I going with that? So they, he, he finds out that it's, it's a lump and it doesn't look like there's evidence that, 
that physician's assistant, Duffy, uh, determined it to be anything but a benign cyst. Although he does write in the in the note, the excusal note that he gives Punk, something referencing MRSA or staff, but that does not mean that it was MRSA or staff. In fact, it turns it looks like it was probably nothing but a benign cyst. Yeah, he he, he says that you know it's it's MRSA, it's a uh, purple and green. I could have died. Gonna, there, there's all that drama it's about need it. An antibiotic IV, and uh, you know when you squeezed it, the the quote shit hit the ceiling yes and he felt um, it on the back of his neck you know, and so on and so forth um and and what was funny is i guess part of this too is that there must have been have proof a, it was M- mrsa in fact it sounded like the physician assistant just said no it was fatty tissue yeah we're, we're kind of getting, getting into wild speculating here right but there must have been some sort of infection right because he put him on antibiotics according to his testimony for a couple weeks and then cut it open so there had to be some sort of infection but it wasn't he who cut it open, right? It was it was it the w- other guy. It was Duffy that cut it open. Yeah, D- Duffy. Well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, what, what I'm saying is Duffy cut it open, but Duffy gave him a- antibiotics for a couple of weeks first before cutting it open. Yeah, and and a lot of times, you know, if you do have an infection in your body, you're going to be put on broad spectrum antibiotics. That's not unusual. That doesn't mean your life is being threatened. Yeah, you know, you get antibiotics for sinus infection. Yeah, which which it's uh, the, the testimony says that Amon gave him a. Uh, the Z pack, the infamous Z pack to treat sinusitis, the sinus infection, and that's the, and that's the piece that I do think helps the defense is that there is some evidence here that Amon probably prescribed antibiotics with and Z packs to wrestlers and did not keep a uh, essentially a chain of custody. Mm-hmm. You know, more or less wrote names on envelopes and handed it out. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is good evidence to say, hey, that's not the appropriate way of acting. Now, again, we I think we just recently learned what, like, you know, Trump's doctor in the White House was doing something like this, too. Giving him Z-Packs? Oh, giving out antibiotics and, and controlled prescriptions to people without the right no trade of custody. No, yeah. Keeping no record of it. Yeah. I don't remember if Z-Packs were the thing, but it was bad enough that the other people in the office got very upset uh, and were worried about the fact that they couldn't account for, I think it was painkillers, but... Uh, yeah, but ju- just to that effect of like we've heard of other organizations where this has happened. Yeah, and so I just mean it. It's not like oh my god, this is the one example of it in history. Yeah. I think doctors often, when they're in situations like this, do this sort of stuff, and it's against the criteria of what they're supposed to do. But it happens. A, I'm sure every medical. I mean, we heard about it with the medical trainers at the uh, football camps. You know, that they were, they would quote, give out painkillers like candy and stuff like that. And they dispense it in other states than the states that they were registered to be in and so forth. Yeah. A Z pack is a form of the brand name medication Zinthromax, which contains the antibiotic azithromycin. Uh, azithromycin is used to treat many different kinds of bacterial infections, including bronchitis and pneumonia. However, it is not typically the first choice for st- treating strep throat. Uh, penicillin, moxicillin also. Okay. This is about strep throat. Yeah. Yeah. But so what we have found is on day one, we listen to the podcast. On day two, we get a lot of more information. And on that one, uh, you know, he, Amon talks about how much he's been damaged. He says, I've, I've been, I'm angry and I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I was harassed and ridiculed by fans, punk fans. And they, they show examples of the tweets, including the one from what was it, Mike Literus? Yes, which there was a, a laugh in the uh, the courtroom about. 
Um, there's there's a tweet uh, from from a Marissa Payne uh, featuring a sign was made on Raw. Can someone check my staff infection? It said, and Amon says he felt angry and embarrassed and humiliated about this. Um, and again, I I think this is pretty good evidence that you know people very quickly tied this podcast. I mean, it says it was on December first. Was that tweet showing that that uh, Raw sign? Mm-hmm. Um, and the podcast came out a week earlier. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could make a pretty good argument here that people attached the stories to Christopher Amon after this podcast came out very quickly. And so I do think it's a little – I think it's a stretch to say, hey, the podcast wasn't about him because people did immediately latch on to him and begin to ridicule him. Yeah. He's not named, so, but it, it is about him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, or, or whether it is or not, people assumed it was about him. Mm-hmm. His reputation went down in the standing of lots of people who had never heard of him, and they immediately decided to deride him based mm-hmm. on the comments that Punk made. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there's a pretty strong cause of action to say, yeah, people attached your podcast that you might say was about you not getting pushed and and WWE being dysfunctional, but they also took it to mean Christopher Amon is a bad doctor. Mm-hmm. So I, I I I give him some credit for what the substantiation of this lawsuit is. Is that it's not like someone who says, "Hey, I'm a guy who's tangentially mentioned on a podcast. No one's ever seemed to put two and two together." But yeah, that was me, and I'm angry. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's not Ryback or someone who's named by who's mentioned by names as being clumsy and and uh, uh injuring people, right? Mm-hmm. Dumb <laughs> I think as someone like yeah. Ryback would say, hey, my reputation was hurt because you said I was not good at, at what I did. Yeah, but Ryback's a public figure. so um, And that's probably what their argument would be. Yes, exactly. So then you'd have to say, was there malice involved? Again, you can still slander and defame someone who's a public figure. It's just there's a higher bar. Yeah. So you want to talk about the Royal Rumble itself, where Amon talks about uh, what he did in the Royal Rumble? So you bothered to rewatch this. Did you watch the whole thing or did you just kind of fast forward around? I watched the whole Royal Rumble and then I went through and I got some timestamps as well. Oh my goodness. Okay. So uh, the whole story here is that Punk basically gets concussed by Kofi and then he gets belligerent and then eventually he gets eliminated by Kane and then Kane doesn't just eliminate him, but then Kane also puts him through a table. That's okay. that's the 10 second version of the story. And that right? makes it sound like this whole thing happened in like the matter of five minutes, which it did not. Um, no, I, I for- like a 50 minute saga, right? I forgot. Punk entered at number one in the Royal Rumble 2014. Uh, Seth Rollins is number two. They're in there for, I mean, Punk's in there and he's the, he's the fourth to last person eliminated. So he's in this Royal Rumble from one hour, 44 minutes all the way up until two hours, 33 minutes later. So he's in the Royal Rumble match for almost an hour. Um, he's number one. Seth Rollins is number two. Uh, about nine minutes later, Kofi Kingston enters the ring. He immediately gives Punk this big leaping clothesline thing. And I'm not sure if that's the clothesline that Punk is referring to that rocked him or, or what the deal was. Um, the, I watched closely, I, and, and Punk and Kofi make a lot of other contact. I don't see anything that looks like Kofi executing a clothesline on Punk after that moment, where he, right where he, he enters. So that, and, and and Punk is still doing spots though is what you're saying is he's still bumping even though he might be concussed at this point right so so if we if we take it for granted that it is that moment right where Kofi enters that's only like eight minutes nine minutes into Punk's run in this Rumble um, lots of we other don't know st- when he actually said I got concussed lots of other stuff happens here so like 
Then Sheamus enters at number 17. That's Punk is now at like 20 minutes into the Rumble. Uh, just as Sheamus is about to enter, uh, the entire Shield is in the Rumble at this point. The Shield gives him the, the triple, ma- you know, the three-man powerbomb. Uh, the camera who Seamus or Punk gives gives Punk the the, the triple power bomb. So they give okay, him. The, so he he's also getting triple power bombed on top of possibly being concussed. Yes. So he gets the triple power bomb. Uh, it seems like they time it wrong, and the camera has to turn away just as he's taking the bump. So you don't actually see whether or not he took the bump at all. There's no replay or anything like that shown. He's up there for the power bomb. Seamus is entering. Seamus's music is playing. The camera goes to Seamus making his entrance. So it looks like he probably takes the bump, but nobody gets to see it. He takes that bump, and I, it looks to me like he's supposed to. This is the plan. He takes this big finisher from the shield and he's going to lay there and sell for a long time while Seamus comes in and runs hot on the shield which is what happens so Punk is laying under, laying there under the bottom rope for a long time selling the triple power bomb but it also looks like he's probably being attended to by some people probably referee John Cone probably Dr. Chris Amon I couldn't tell real clearly maybe if you, if you go back and watch more closely you can probably see that whether or not it's, it's Amon I'm guessing it is and that's, that's the point where he's laying under the rope for uh, a good, let's see here, five minutes, he's laying under the bottom rope, selling, not doing much of anything, uh, until finally Torito comes in and uh, has a, a big stare down with Punk, and uh, they do this, you know, they do sort of a comedy spot, and it ends with Torito giving Punk a, a flying head scissors. And uh, after that, Punk just continues brawling with people and, and acting like he's in a normal battle royal. Um, yeah, and then, and it's not until... The two hour and thirty three minute mark, and again he's been in the been in the rumble for about fifty minutes at this point, where Kane comes back out. This is a callback to Kane being eliminated by Punk earlier in the match. Kane comes back out. It doesn't appear to be early at all. Kane comes back out, eliminates him, choke slams him through the announcer's table, beats him up for a minute uh, before that. So it it doesn't reading the testimony and and had not I had not watched the Royal Rumble match first and then read the testimony. I read the testimony and then a little while later I watched the Royal Rumble match and the t- t- testimony makes it sound like they're all talking and thinking about like, oh, we gotta get Punk out of there. We gotta get Punk out of there. Send Kane out. Send Kane out. As if it's, as if almost it's not even a planned spot at all. It's clearly a planned spot in, in my view. Um, so it looks like Kane comes out there at the time that he's supposed to and I'm guessing Punk is mad because they're trying to pull him out early and he doesn't want to be pulled out early. He wants to do the thing that he was planned to do. And, well, that, and that's the testimony, right, is that he keeps being told, get out of there, get out of there. And he yeah. keeps saying, nope, and right. fighting with him. And, you know, the the story that Meltzer keeps saying is that he had said something like, if you pull me out, I will quit today. Yeah. And the wrestler and the guys were very torn because he had been very difficult lately. And and this is part of the testimony saying that, yeah, he had talked about quitting and he had he the heck helped punk backstage and witnessed him cuss people out and leave <laughs> uh, is an example yeah. here. And so I remember punk was very upset. And at the time it is, is this, you know, the rumor and uh, he's the, the rumor at the time was that his contract's expiring in July and he's probably going to leave. He's so unhappy. Yeah. So we we get through all of that. And so when you read all the testimony, when you see it actually playing out, I think there's not a great defense for what Kane did next, right? Because if the medical staff is truly concerned about Punk's health, the idea of putting him through a table seems like a really bad idea. Would you agree? Yeah, if you're getting communication to Gorilla that he's concussed 
he's rocked. I mean, that there's the line in there from Amon himself where he says that he's concussed, right? And and I would say it's indisputable that there's communication. Mark Yeaton talks about it. Uh, Amon talks about it. Uh, they have specific people saying this person in Gorilla, Billy Kidman said this, Larry Heck said this. I mean, there's too many people for them all to have concocted this story afterwards. Amon right? approached Keaton to ask him to inform Gorilla that Punk was concussed and needed to leave the ring. Amon doesn't have a, a microphone on himself, but Yeaton does. Yeah. But I mean, and so it doesn't seem possible that people that don't work for the company now would concoct a story. Yeaton then told Gorilla that Punk was concussed and needed to leave the match. Amon heard Michael Hayes, the producer, give the order for Punk to roll out of the ring. And now remember, this is this is quite late into the match at, at this point. Uh, this is would be just, I believe, I mean, I have no idea if this is exactly it, but this is my my best uh, judgment is that he's uh, this is right after the triple powerbomb from the Shield. So this is pretty late into it. Amon heard Michael Hayes, the producer, give the order for Punk to roll out of the ring. Uh, Amon did not talk to Punk any further in the match. And Kane actually ends up uh, testifying via video. He does, Glenn Jacobs uh, himself. Yeah, and so he he says he's a performer. He says they plan out matches like the Royal Rumble. He says Punk never made him aware of a lump or infection. He cannot. Um, it was testified at various points in this match in this uh, lawsuit that uh, pro wrestling is predetermined, it is scripted. And and they actually get into detail about, you know, how do you plan out a Royal Rumble at one point where they basically say, well, they, they kind of give us the who's going in and who's going out. And then it's up to the rest of us to kind of decide what we want to do to fill the spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it is. He, he does basically say it is very complex trying to get this all going um, because it's very, you know, difficult to uh, – you know, Mark Carano was interviewed at one point, the the talent relations guy. We're kind of getting all over and, the place, but the, the point you're, you're making about Kane coming out, um, yeah, if if the if Gorilla knows that there's a good chance Punk is concussed, Gorilla did nothing to to tell Kane to like, well, just eliminate him and that's it. They could have done that. They could have said, get get him out of there and then don't put him through the table like we planned because he's probably got a concussion. They could have done that. And they didn't. And that said, you know, a lot of times guys just do what they want, right? So Punk, I would imagine, in this state, probably would be uh, – <laughs> he probably just would say, nope, we said we were going to do this. I stayed in this this effing ring this long to get this mm-hmm. pro, get this you know thing over, do what I said I was going to do, which was be in the final four, and we're going to do the spot. Mm-hmm. And especially if Kane – you know, Kane doesn't ever seem to say one way or the other about whether he knew that Punk was concussed at the time of the uh, – at the time he went out to eliminate him. Does he say that ever? I don't think he says. Yeah, I, Kane's testimony is very short. And so it does you, – you do see, though, uh, a big fight break out between the lawyers when they go to show this part. So the lawyers fight – get the attorneys get into a fight. I'm, I'm quoting from the Russell's own coverage here. Over how much footage from the 2014 Royal Rumble can be shown. Mm-hmm. Ahmad is on the screen, but his lawyers do not want the footage shown of Kane choke slamming Punk through the announce table to the jury. Mm-hmm. And then the judge says, I don't know who Kane is. And the counsel, right. the big man without the shirt. The count, the judge calls counsel into the hallway where indistinct shouting is heard. And you can imagine why this is such a big fight, right? 
because, because there's, basically there's so much... it hurts Amon's case to say that they're providing the best medical care that they can for Punk in this difficult situation. Because there's so much disagreement does... about uh, whether or not Kane is one of the great performers of the last 20 years. I think that's what they were arguing about. No, oh. I think it's uh, and then, you know, again, my wife said something here being like, this is the sort of thing that should have been knocked out in pretrial mm. about whether this footage was admissible. Mm. And so this is a good example of where the lawyers are trying in the day of a court to admit something like this. And that is, you know, it has the potential to be very prejudiciary. Mm. And so, yes, it happened. But, you know, it's up to the judge to decide whether or not that kind of footage would be shown. Mm hmm. So I, I, I do – I'm not surprised in the slightest that that's where they fought all in all. Um, so day three, I think Cabana testifies, right? Is it on day three here? Yeah. I'm sorry. You're right. Day four, Cabana testifies and um, – no, no. Cabana, Cabana started testifying on day three. Yeah. Yep. And they argue over, you know, when was the podcast updated. Uh, one good point that's brought up is, you know, at a certain point, he gets a letter. From Amon basically saying, hey, you got to take down this podcast, right? Cease and desist. He, yeah, he says he, he confirms that he received a letter asking him to uh, post a retraction of the statements there. And then there's a text message going back and forth. And, and sadly, we don't have the date of that text message. But Cabana writes, I just got a physical letter from Amon. Cabana confirms that Punk receives a cease and desist as well. Punk says, poor guy. I almost feel bad. I was mean. Colt refuses to confirm that he knew Punk was talking about Amon. Colt suggests that Punk might have been talking about the entire medical staff. Text message from Punk, but fuck him. End quote. And I think that's important is that, you know, what happens is it matters what you do after you receive the letter. Technically, you're not you're not libeling someone until they basically say, I demand you retract this. Mm hmm. Uh, at that point, then your then your actions from that point that's what matters. So it's interesting that like um, then he basically uh, confirms that he take he uh, he he unlists the podcast, but he still leaves it up on YouTube direct. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting there because you could make a strong argument that if he had just delisted the podcast, at I, that I, point I don't know the YouTube direct continued so. to. Uh, Allow it. Yeah, this this is from the notes. I don't know that YouTube Direct is a thing. I think what they're trying to get at is there's an unlisted. Yes. Uh, on Colcabana's Col channel, I think is the implication is that there's an unlisted video of episode 226, which is the first of these two interviews with uh, with with CM Punk. The other one is also up there too publicly, which I, that's how I listened to the second one the other day. So. Yeah, and and. You know, I think they also make the point at some point here about, you know, the difference between views and listens, where you can't say whether or not it's one person listening a hundred times or a hundred people listening individually. Yeah. Which is always something that annoys me whenever I hear someone conflate views and listens. Yeah. And they say over 10 million people have viewed this thing. Be like, nope, the video has been viewed 10 million times. We don't know how many people viewed it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's just a personal uh, uh, thing that drives me out. It's the buy buy rates versus buy well, number yeah. of buys. And at, at this again. point, I think all these big media companies count views or listens. They count their metrics with all different criteria as far as like how many yeah. seconds do you have to be viewing for it to be counted as a view and all that. Yes. So, um, yeah, I can only imagine if that AJ Applegate or whatever put on any uh, pre-show YouTube advertising on if he made any money off of this podcast. Who? What? 
Oh, they, they make the point that somebody right after when, when the podcast failed on the servers, yeah. somebody put it up on YouTube under the name like AJ Applegate or something was like the username. Uh-huh. And it got millions of views very quickly there. Right. And that's mentioned in the lawsuit originally about, you know, the version of this interview is up on YouTube by this mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. So I, I was just wondering if that person, you know, you're knowing asking that about monetization of, of that particular upload. <laughs> well, you, to, yeah. to even monetize, you have to be, uh, you have to have, a, well, at least the way it is now. I don't know how it was on in the fall. Again, of it was three years ago. Yeah. So it was different then. But AJ Universes is the guy's name. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm not sure how different it was in, in this case. Like, you can't just mon- you can't just start up a channel and monetize instantly. You have yeah, to have but a certain I'm guessing this person views. already had a channel. That doesn't mean that they could monetize, though. You're very upset at the notion that someone might have monetized. I don't this. know. We don't know that it, that they could have. I'm say I meant more in this idea of saying how much they could have made off of it. They could have. They tried to. Yeah. That was more what I, I sure. meant by that. Sure. Yeah. Um. So on day three, uh, Cabana starts testifying. On day four. Uh, Punk is testifying, and I believe. Do we know what day the def- uh, the plaintiffs rest? No, I don't. Uh, I can't remember whether it's the end of day two or the beginning of day three. Maybe this, the, um, at, at the beginning of day four, it's it, they talk about suspenders, and it, yeah. and then it, then the notes say no. The plaintiff side rested. I don't know if that's as it concerns. Okay, yes, yes. That, I don't know that's if that's, that's as it for. concerns whether suspenders are still in or if that if the plaintiff side has rested their argument. Well, the way it goes is plaintiffs present yeah. defense, and then the plaintiffs kind of have their second round. Uh-huh. And I think defense then have their second round, if I if I know, understand what's so, happening. And that's what it looks like here, yeah. Yeah. So this is the, the kind of the first round. So the first round goes through, then the defense has their, sec- their first round, and then there's kind of like a rebuttal to those first two rounds and then closing arguments. Yeah. And, of course, each one of the witnesses, you're going to have both the plaintiff and the defense be able to to examine. Yeah. So, um. So yeah, then then Colt and Punk. Uh, day four was funny. Again, you know, uh, I think at one point Dave said something like, "Oh, not a lot happened on day four testimony," and I'd be like, "I think it's the exact opposite." <laughs> I thought day four was fascinating, uh, and so we're I talk about the, the most, uh, uh, probably unusual thing about this is where there's a line in here. It says Punk almost starts crying, mm-hmm. and then later on it just says Punk has started crying. And he discussed having crying spells. Mm-hmm. And the judge basically tells him to compose himself and gives him 15 minutes to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was really surprised that it, it got there. Were you did, did When you read that, were you kind of astonished? That Punk cried? On the stand, yeah. I don't know. Um, from the, like, the public images I see of CM Punk, he's, uh, he's changed a lot. And he's, it seems like he has really wiped wrestling out of his mind and now he's having to revisit it he says he has never listened to the podcast back until just recently before this case um yeah i don't know i it's uh understandable i guess yeah i i guess i just was really surprised to see how vulnerable he was and just talking about how terrible a situation he kind of was in yeah, I mean, you listen and, to that podcast and you, you know, knowing everything you know about him and how, uh, you know, stubborn he can be about stuff and how hard he works at stuff. Like, I can see him being, you know, he, he was in a really stressed out place here and he was revisiting it. Yeah, and I guess some of it is, it seems like a lot of people have put the blame on WWE for him getting to that place. And I guess it just says to me that he was in a very fragile state himself. Mm-hmm. 
and everybody's going to react differently in that state. I think it's interesting all the details you get out of this, things like, you know, confirming that he used to shower and dress on his bus and that he uh, – there was only a very few – very small group of people that he would let kind of be on the bus mm-hmm. with him, AJ, Kofi Kingston, and the bus driver. Mm-hmm. And uh, this can, this is at least is someone told me once that so and so had a match with Punk, and Punk literally didn't come off of his bus until like minutes before their match. Mm-hmm. And then they went to the ring and did it. Mm-hmm. And it was the sort of thing like they didn't have a chance to talk to them all afternoon or anything, but Punk would be like by himself, would come out, do his thing, and then leave. Mm-hmm. And it was it was, you know, it was very lonely. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't I won't say selfish, but I'll just say he wasn't part of the bigger group at the time. He was clearly someone who was operating very much on his own. Yeah. I mean, and, he's clearly and, pretty miserable towards the end of his run here. Yeah. Yeah. Very fragile. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And very, very bumped up. I mean, him talking about the status of him, uh, his body and whatnot, I think. There, there are pieces of punk story that never really made a lot of sense, which some people have seized on, like the idea that we wouldn't know when the European tour was. Yeah. People would be surprised by that. Yeah. And so I do think that some of this is his own recollections of its wrestler truth. It is, I, I find it very hard to take them at their word and just say, yeah, that's true. That must be how it happened. You remember that, right? Versus you're in a real fragile sense. You are a little paranoid. You are in terrible physical health and you think that the company's abusing you. And so every time they ask you to do something or something happens, you see it through those lenses. Yeah. And so you're going to have a very biased view of what's happening to you. And some of it's going to be honest and some of it is going to be colored. Yeah, I, I think him thinking that he had a staph infection is like the example of that. Like, I think he just felt like so victimized and, and so threatened and so stressed out by the situation. And he, I think he sincerely believed that he was mistreated by Aman. He was not given the treatment that he should have been given. And he was, he felt that he was very mistreated by WE. And then he went and saw this physician's assistant. We thought it was a doctor and, and he heard the words staff or MRSA uttered, or he saw them on the note and just jumped to the conclusion that he has staff and he believed it. And that's what he told people. And that's what he said on the podcast. Though, though, I think in the testimony here, he kind of clears up the fact that the, the, the PA actually didn't think it was MRSA. In fact, he said, I'd have to go get it tested to make, to say it was MRSA. Right. It's probably just a fatty, fatty tissue. But that's what he believed at the time. And he believed that yeah. at least up to the time that he made that podcast recording in November, 2014. And there's the weird line in there where Punk says, well, he didn't get it tested because quote, he didn't have a doctor who didn't have insurance. Yeah. And another people have been like, oh, my God, you know, WWE is is ridiculous that they they should have known he didn't have insurance. And it'd just be like, nope, WWE as an independent contractor tries to keep itself as far away as they can from that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they write in their contract, you need to have your own insurance. And then they try to try to basically stay away from it as much as they can. Yeah. And they have since then continued to do lots of things that blur the lines. Right. So if you kick and your knee goes out and you go down in the ring, they'll pay for your knee surgery. Yeah. But if you're at home <laughs> taking out the trash and you throw out your shoulder and your name Randy Orton, they'll probably pay for your shoulder surgery. But if your name's Zack Ryder, Zack Ryder's probably on the hook himself. Yeah. So it's it's very it's very uh they are intentionally very in the dark about the status, their medical status of their independent contractors. And so I'm not surprised that CM Punk didn't bother to keep insurance on himself or keep up with doctors. 
yeah. um, because he got himself in such a bad state and he was so busy. But yeah. he also didn't seem like he was being responsible. And, and he talks a lot about it seems like his wife than girlfriend, AJ, you know, quote, caring more about his health than he did. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I do think the fact that Punk called, quote, somebody the most worthless piece of shit he'd ever met. And and Amon thinks that that was him. He, mm-hmm. he called. Mm-hmm. You could say he was redirecting a lot of that fragility and anger towards a single person. Yeah. And that's why that person is suing. Right. Is is I, I feel like a lot of people think that this is coming out of the blue and I I flip it around and say, No, there's a lot of reasons Amon thought he was talking about him and that Amon felt defamed and belittled by this. Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk about I, I think this podcast had a lot of effect on the wrestling audience. Had a big effect. Well, I think CM Punk was always one of these people that had a disproportionate um rebound to what he did. Mm-hmm. You know, the rumors that the money in the bank pay-per-view was one of the most heavily ordered pay-per-views of all time because the internet pay-per-views crashed the night that the event was happening and in the end the buy rate came out and it was good but it wasn't great yeah and people thought then it was a conspiracy by wwe to to lie to us about how how well the pay-per-view did and a lot of that i point to is just that cm punk disproportionately resonated with his audience his audience wasn't necessarily the largest audience in wrestling, but it disproportionately always resonated the pipe bomb promo, other things. And so the fact it's a podcast related to CM Punk, I think helped a lot. But yeah, I, I think this podcast and CM Punk's status as a whole, someone who literally packed his bags and walked away from the business when he was arguably in the top, you know, top guys in the company. Yeah. Uh, it, it's unusual. And the fact he hasn't turned back and then he, he got a UFC deal out of it. He got the rights to his name out of it. Uh, some people have said that maybe he basically used the podcast as a way of blackmailing the company is basically say, not the podcast, but the stories he was telling on the podcast, basically saying, hey, I had staff. I had MRSA. If you guys don't give me my release, you know, you're in a ton of trouble. Yeah. And it kind and, of and there was some sort of settlement quick release. And there was some, some sort of settlement in July. Right. Um, after after he was fired, even right where he was given everything he wanted and more, because I guess there was some issue about his royalties. Uh, yeah, he, they were just he, basically saying, if you don't show up to work, we have you under contract. We don't have to pay your royalties. The story goes he found a check that he hadn't cashed yet, and he but he still wanted an, another check that he was due, and they, they were withholding that because they felt he was in breach of contract. And then f- finally he was fired on his wedding day. He was very upset about that. Then they had a settlement that I believe was finalized in July 2014, and where, he, where Punk says on the podcast he got everything he wanted and more, or and then some. Uh, and so that was that. And then several months later, he did the podcast. Um, and I mean, if you go to US, USPTO.gov and you look up the CM Punk trademark, mm-hmm. you actually see that there's a filing done where they reassign the trademark from WWE to CM Punk to yeah. Phil Brooks. Yeah. Um, Around that time, things related to that settlement? Yes, yes. Yeah. And so I'm just looking up exactly what date that was. Um, sorry, they've, they've moved something around on me here. So I'm... Oh. I'm getting annoyed because oh. i can't can't just log in the way i always did where is it sorry ah <sighs> driving me nuts well anyway, you know he, what? He, i think i have it on indeedwrestling.com yeah in my contract section uh and then if i look up punk i can see they reassigned it on october 24th 2014 okay. so about one month prior to thanksgiving 45 days or so prior to Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. there was a contract signed um, between Philip Jack Brooks and Jane Geddes. 
mm-hmm. at the time the SVP of operations for talent and live events. Yeah. And that that reassigned the CM Punk trademark and actually a second one called the Second City Saint. Uh, the Second City Saint trademark never ended up basically going into effect because uh, other people that use Second City, such as Second City Improv, were suing them over it. And they basically dropped it in the end. Uh, right. No one wanted to kind of continue the trademark registration for it. I believe Second but, City uh, Saints is a, is a tag team name uh, for CM Punk and Colt Cabana. Yeah, from the, back in the day. But they had actually tried to make a trademark out yeah. of it. Oh, and yeah. basically it was found not to be uh, something that the trademark office would issue. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I can adjust the volume here. Anyway, so <laughs> I, I, I think um, nobody's really talked about this. I've never ever heard anybody put this argument out there like this before. It sort of dawned on me just revisiting all this stuff. I think like the whole Roman Reigns story about how Roman Reigns being – been rejected by the the audience he gets booed but maybe he's really a star still anyway i think a lot of this uh i think this this podcast and this whole situation is a big component in that um i think if you think about like 2014 think about the reach this podcast got and you can just you know wipe it off and say oh no it's just the internet in late 2014 and what really matters that's on the internet just these i don't really take too much into consideration about what happens on the internet but a lot of people saw this uh, a lot of people heard this podcast right i mean like i think if i stood in a line of fans at some wrestling event whether wb or whatever and sort of asked them around have you heard the the cm punk Cabana podcast i think a lot of them are going to say yes um well it combines the things that 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 a uh, white men love podcasts and cm punk sure I think I think there's other demographics that like CM Punk too, but I know I'm just um, joking because I've I've heard some people ridicule podcasts as the uh, the home for you know white men in their 20s and 30s to give their their hot takes on everything. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you're right. I th- I think I think uh, the internet's reaction to this and the internet's reaction to Roman Reigns. There's an enormous Venn diagram there. Yeah, and think think of the timing. This is late 2014, you know, and. Uh, the Royal Rumble in 2015, which I think is where, where Roman Reigns is, is outright rejected for the first time, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But yeah, I think, like, do you think about, like, how many people saw this? It's hard to say, right? Because the server crashed and the email crashed. And, uh, there's. Well, I mean, but, but Cabana himself says that he thinks he gets, what did he say, two and a half million downloads? Yeah. So a lot of people saw it or heard it. And even if they didn't, I, I think you know somebody who has or is isn't you know been affected by that you know hearing that story so that sort of changes the lens a little bit with how you view WWE. Um, oh yeah, I mean I I think you're you're right in the sense that so many people uh, took this as a gospel, and on wrestling media you could make a story out of any element of this. It was like, instead of there being a, a, a transcript of an interview and you're like, oh, Honky Tonk said one unusual thing I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. It was like Punk laid out hundreds of claims in this yeah. podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go through it. And I, I the, the things that he, he raises here are like every theme of this this program that you're listening to. Um, but so, so just to give some background, like so CM Punk, he had just done that Las Vegas pipe bomb promo and which had really raised his profile and he was kind of an indie cult figure anyway, but that really raised his profile, you had ESPN covering it, he had people, you know, mainstream media outlets starting to cover it. And in, in some ways, the precursor of the, the more mainstream sports news acceptance that we see WWE get today. Um, he went on to be champion for all of 2012. And of course, this this Royal Rumble happens in January 2014, and it, it result him leaving. He leaves the next day in Cleveland, where Raw's in Cleveland. The next day, he has a meeting 
the infamous meeting with Vincent and Hunter and tells him that he, that he's quitting. And, and this, you know, this sort of, you know, spins the wheel so that finally, rather than having Batista and Randy Orton in a, uh, in a WrestleMania main event, by the way, this Royal Rumble 2014 ends with people just booing the hell out of Rey Mysterio and Batista because they didn't get Daniel Bryan in, in the Royal Rumble. Daniel Bryan wrestled earlier that night in, in a loss to Bray Wyatt. But people wanted to see Daniel Bryan in that Royal Rumble. They were pissed in Pittsburgh that he was not in that Royal Rumble. They booed Rey Mysterio of all people. Batista won it. They booed the hell out of Batista for winning it. Um, so that that event all happens. And, uh, so and, you, you mean like the idea of, of the company anointing someone, in this case Batista, rather than reacting to what the fans wanted? That, that's the thing. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to go back and, and watch this is like that the last two, I, th- I think, are Batista and Roman Reigns, and people are all the way behind Roman Reigns. It's just a th- I think part of it is because, you know, Roman Reigns is this, this fresh figure in, in January 2014. The shield is really hot, really protected, really over. They did a great job. You look, look at it, look at things in hindsight through the, the, the world we live in now where like, the shield is so protected and it's so built up to be a star in a way that nobody else, I think nobody else has been given a similar opportunity since. I think Rowan Reigns has been given that opportunity, but people are so conscious of what, what the hell's going on there. They don't want it. But I think they were willing to accept Rowan Reigns on that night. They would have cheered if Rowan Reigns had won the Royal Rumble in January 2014 because he was an alternative to the same old shit that I think they felt that they were being served. And John Cena's phenomenon is kind of a a component in this too. Is like, all right, John Cena's a big, big star and he's really over, but we kind of resent him too for whatever reasons. And and I think that that audience in Pittsburgh felt like you're just trying to recycle and rehash the same old shit. We'll accept Roman Reigns. We really want Daniel Bryan, but we'll accept Roman Reigns. But then they sort of, got negative on Roman Reigns for a variety of reasons. And I think the, the the podcast is one of them. So this podcast comes out in November, 2014. And, uh, there's that story in there about how, you know, in, in part two about how you got to make Roman look strong, which is if you, even if you haven't heard that part two, you've heard the meme about, you got to make Roman look strong. Somebody keeps coming up to him. You got to make Roman look strong. Uh, he's talking about this, uh, one on three handicap match he has with against the shield on some pay per view. Um, and, and and the same thing Ryback gets buried a lot on this yes yeah. podcast and, too, and yeah. I, I do feel like this also hurts Ryback standing a lot where he sure, is portrayed as yeah. clumsy and sure. dumb and I know I'm so fucking stupid <laughs> like when he drops him up right doesn't I'm dumb as fuck um, yeah so so that's so November that's Thanksgiving the very next week is that awesome interview well I don't know if it's that awesome with um. Vince McMahon and Steve Austin on the network, which I think is the longest uh, interview that Vince McMahon has done in a long time and, and since. Oh, this is Shane is working in Japan. Right. That's the very next week after the CM Punk and Colt Cabana interview where he, he kind of addresses it. And he says, I just want to apologize for firing him on his wedding day. That was just uh, clearly a matter of miscommunication. And yeah, and like the, that the, they go as far as this podcast comes up in the Austin interview. Yeah, yeah. on WWE's own network. So, exactly. it, so I recall at the time they announced Austin and, and Vince are going to do the podcast. This is like two weeks out. Then Thanksgiving comes. I don't know if it's two weeks out, but it's before Thanksgiving. They announced they're going to do this Austin Vince interview. Then Thanksgiving morning comes that po- the Cabana and and Punk podcast drops. Then on I think it's a following Monday Night Raw uh, after Thanksgiving. That's where that that interview happens live on the network in whatever town that they were in. So Vince comes off looking really bad and out of touch in, in that interview. Um, 
Vince come off, comes off looking really bad and out of touch uh, in, in the Cabana interview. And, uh, and I think those things kind of go together and then and people see how they're trying to build up Roman Reigns and Roman Reigns isn't isn't the favorite pick of the crowd. And they feel like maybe he's maybe there's others, at least Daniel Bryan, who are just as if not more deserving. But anyway, the, the well, things that are the, are the Vince interview has you doesn't that have the, the Cesaro. You got to grab the brass ring. Yeah, maybe it's because uh, he's Swiss. I don't know. Yeah. Right. So the, the thing doesn't feel like became a meme and a, and a storyline. Yeah. So the, the the themes that are raised by CM Punk in the podcast interview with Cabana itself, I, I feel like are like all the things that this show is about, or maybe all the things that I care about. Maybe I've just like internalized the content of that podcast in certain ways that I'm not even aware of. So like he talks about the independent contractor issue. He says, for 10 years of my life, I was illegally listed as an independent contractor, and they were terrified I was going to go go to court and ruin the way they do business. Like, I forgot how clearly he lays out, like, all the labor issues in WWE. Um, which, which, again, if he had acted at the time, he would have been in the statute of limitations to right. make a great argument. And I, I think it speaks to the fragility and the um, of, of his well-being at the time, the fact that he didn't pursue that. Right. Because he, he, he totally I, lays I out think, the independent contractor slash employee issue as the thing that gave him the leverage that he needed to get the settlement that he got. Yeah, in, in a sense, he cashed in on it as a way to get himself out rather than to fight the fight. Right. Um, and I, I'm not blaming him for that. I, I, that might sound a little cynical to be like, well, you could have raised the living standards of lots of other people. But wrestling is a business always that has been about everybody, every man for themselves. Mm-hmm. And Punk necessarily never necessarily said he was against that. I think he didn't like it, but he never said, "I'm going to be the leader that's going to speak up and save all these people." He does say he would like to see there be some sort of a union. He says everybody those words exactly. He said those words exactly. Not everybody says that. Who, who else says no, that? That's true. That's true. But I, I guess I just mean everyone says I'd like to see better working conditions for wrestlers. He said the word but, union. I would like I know to see there be some sort of a union. And also in part two, he says you can't put a non-compete, a no-compete clause on an independent yes. contractor. Uh, this is where he's talking about things like his non-compete clause says that you can't work for UFC. And he, he, he points out the hypocrisy of how WWE says that UFC is not competition, but there they are named in a no-compete clause. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I think he's accurate in the sense it's uh, hypocritical. I, I don't know whether he's accurate in the legal sense because <laughs> non-competes are – very they they vary by state they vary by sure. time frame they vary by severity they vary by penalty it, it, so the point is it's character revealing of wwe oh yes um, yeah it is i just meant i i want to be clear here though that we're not assigning legality to what punk is saying though mm-hmm. is that i again i think sometimes he's making claims and these are untested claims so for him to say it is illegal to put a non-compete clause in against ufc Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. I don't think that's true. Personally. No, he, do- he doesn't say it's illegal. Um, okay. All right. I just want to I just want to be clear here that that he said a lot of things that got him thrown into a courtroom the first time. So <laughs> let's not take him all at his word. He does yes. say you can't put a no compete clause on an independent contract. And I think he is implying that that is illegal. And, yes. that he could and I would on- disagree with that. But yes. OK. okay. So he, but he raises a lot of other issues about how he's he's underpaid and he knows his worth. He uh he had a, an agreement to do some sort of convention that was going to pay him $20,000. And then he complains about how he got $10,000 paydays to work, you know, street fights or hardcore matches in Mexico or like, it was- which I never, I, I understand that's a complaint, 
but I always thought WWE was on the right on that one. W, I mean, again, that fights with the idea of being an independent contractor, so that can be your angle on it. But if you work for WWE and they tell you to go do a house show somewhere else, you should be at that house show. Yeah. And and it's it's too bad that you could make more money doing something else. But does that mean every time you get a TV deal or a movie deal, they should just give you time off to go do that? Yeah. And it's like, well, either they, they control you or they don't. And so I think that's a good example of control. But I, I at the same time would say, you know, you're you're crying over the fact that you could have made more money somewhere else doing what you loved. And instead you're wrestling. Not bumping. So what did you do? Was you left. Yeah. And then you had that opportunity to do whatever you wanted after that. So, But I, is he an independent contractor or not? A, a weird argument. Is he an independent him, contractor but... or is he an employee though? Uh, even independent contractors, you can say to them, hey, I made a deal for you to come and do this with me now. And the fact that you're not fulfilling your contract, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. They talk about how uh, small the, the merchandise royalties are. Cabana makes it sound like it's 20 cents a shirt that the, that the wrestler actually receives. Uh, Punk in part one uh, calls the royalties a fraction of... Uh, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it because if you think about it, most of the shirts, they're not making them themselves. They're probably licensing it. Mm -hmm. Shirts might be different, but, but a lot of times it's licensing deals. WWE's... for those shirts a five percent or ten percent so let's say a twenty dollars shirt maybe wwe is getting two bucks from that right yeah ten percent um, to to the guys that's ten percent of their ten percent and that's why it's 20 cents now is that right no but does it make sense why the accounting works that way yeah and and i think punk's uh view is he knows what he's worth it's it's sort of something else to tell him that he's underpaid that w's not paying him what he's worth uh, which is an issue that we, we've been talking about lately with uh, the expected huge increase in TV rights fees coming up in 2020. Um, he has concerns about, well, when things change from the pay-per-view to the network, are we still going to be paid the same way? He gets no answers about that. And and this is the perfect example of why this podcast hit at the right time. The network had just launched in February of 2014. Mm -hmm. So at this point, it's nine months in. They've only had one WrestleMania. That WrestleMania was heavily purchased on on pay-per-view traditionally. Mm -hmm. And anyone who, who saw the bellwether at the time would have said, oh, my God, a year from now, it's not going to be like this. The network is reliable. The network is cheap. People are going to switch. Plus, in, the, uh, uh, the, in August of 2014, the network went global. So all the, all the world basically got on the network close to there at the time with the exception of by – August of or uh, November of 2014, UK was not on the network, yeah. but almost everyone else was. Yeah. That mattered. And he leaves and right so before he, it launches. So, like, I mean, CM Punk's never been on a live network event. Yeah. And so you can also see uh, people ask me, do they get paid for pay-per-views? And I always say, if it's their old contract, the one they signed many years ago, yes, almost no one should be on that contract anymore. So mm -hmm. CM Punk would have been one of the last guys on that old contract, right? Yeah. Most of the guys now, when they sign a new contract, when Zolf Ziggler signs a new contract, I imagine it, stri it strips out any royalties for pay-per-views and has done that for a while. Yeah. You know, maybe Daniel Bryan was on the old contract, too. He'd be about the, the only other guy. Yeah. I mean, he, he complains about how, you know, I'll go work at Starbucks, then at least they'll probably give me insurance if he works full-time there. He doesn't get enough time off. He's got all these injuries. He has, like, this two-month period off where he doesn't feel any need to come back. Uh, he says they're bullies at one point, sort of painting a picture of the uh, the corporate culture, the working culture there. He talks about losing to part-timers. He's lost to 
Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker. Now you want him to lose to Triple H, which is still a an issue that you know is still around today. He criticizes the wellness policy where he says where he he talks about how they amended the drug policy to to benefit. He doesn't name who it was to benefit. He talks about the the strikes being removed. He's referring to Orton there, Orton getting favorable treatment, and then they want him to take a drug test and. He, and Triple H says that, well, Dave Batista just took the same piss test you did. And then he fires back at Triple H, did you? Pointing out, you know, the unfair uh, application of the wellness policy. It applies to some people, but it doesn't apply to everybody. Um, talking about how Vince McMahon is out of touch. You know, Cabana says he's an old out of touch. I don't know, maybe this is a punk, but so someone says that, it, you know, he's an old an out of touch person who's making decisions. Vince McMahon in his stubborn ways, the way they, they twist and bend the story to fit their narrative. They creatively stifled him, he says. Now, the, the the whole relationship between Punk and Vince, I think, is one of the most interesting parts of the podcast. Because yeah. you do get that Vince is a father figure mm -hmm. he hugs in a lot him. of these wrestlers' narrative yeah. over and over again. And I, I feel like that comes up in the Punk one, too, mm -hmm. where a lot of these guys seem like they personally want to please Vince, even as angry as they get with this. It's like they're always trying to prove it to Vince. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's very Freudian or uh, <laughs> uh, 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 psychological issues that are kind of deep rooted here in the control that the company exerts over a lot of these people. Yeah. The heat be between Punk and WWE is clearly more on Paul Levesque than it is Vince. Um, yeah. Like 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 he, he thinks of Vince is out of touch, but he doesn't in some ways it seems like he's annoyed at, at Triple H for being the bad guy uh, and being a competitor. In a lot and, of ways. And he, and he and says that I seriously – is what everyone's fighting for. He, he says that I seriously resent you for – because he came out of retirement and beat him in the middle of his hottest run right after the, the pipe bomb promo. Came in and went, went over on him and that was it and then went back into retirement or whatever. Uh, so he, he felt very mistreated about that. Um, I think it's really interesting to to notice too like that Rusev is, is the guy that's called up from NXT to be in the Royal Rumble in 2014. Um and Punk refers and to, to him. And to the big program with Cena, was that 2015? Yeah, it was. Following year, yeah. Um, so they, they, yeah. Ca they call up Rusev out of NXT to be in, in this Royal Rumble, and uh, and Punk refers to him on the podcast as, yeah, that Rusev guy. And uh, and how, because he, you know, had never really worked with him before, probably, right? Because he was from developmental. And, uh, and, and to, to think about this in the light that Rusev is, is used today, and, and I feel that he's been, you know, tremendously squandered he could have been somebody who was underutilized yeah yeah he's somebody who could have could have been a if nothing else a big top heel star remember there was buzz around just the notion of of rusev and lesnar happening and like i think it, it quietly happened on a house show like a year or two ago and it was just a squash you know but uh punk talks about this conversation that he has with rusev and gorilla where he says this is your first impression you have to do something and rusev according to punk says okay i'll come over and, and stomp you and Punk says, no, you have to fucking pick me up and do something. Look around you. None of these motherfuckers care about you. They don't care about you. They don't hope you succeed. They don't give a shit about your push. You have to make your moments count. And I thought it was just, you know, kind of foreshadowing. It's distilling improv, uh, improv <laughs> wrestling to a single thing, which is yeah. every person needs to make their thing count. Yeah. Because the idea that it's a communal good and everyone's going to be happier when you, you succeed is not the mentality most people are, are operating with. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting to say, you know, look where Rusev has, has ended up today, where he's, you know, he's he's the Rusev Day guy. And that's his his, his last bastion of, of overness or something here. Um, well, but also to me, it speaks to 
got you can put you can identify a lot of diamonds in the rough very quickly. And sometimes we pretend like this gets back to my my rants about NXT developmental and whatnot. But there's a lot of times that guys start shining very quickly and you can say this is going to be the guy, but you got to do the right things with him. But I don't know. It just it just says to me that, you know, Rusev was one of those diamonds in the rough, one of those, you know, one in a million type guys that you you should have latched more on and seen more with. Mm hmm. And you know uh, he he is a guy that did do a little bit of of wrestling before he uh, started in WWE. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna call him Magic. You're cut, Drew, because I think he went to Rikishi and Gabriel School. School. Yeah. And then of course we get from the uh, the podcast the story that Punk claims that the Shield was my idea, and the uh, it was supposed to be Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins, and Chris Hero. And uh, he, he relays the story where W comes to him and says, well, uh, what, what, what about Liaki, who, who is Roman Reigns? I think it's Leaky is what they call him. He says he pronounces uh, Liaki. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, okay. so they ask him, what about Liaki? And, and you get the sense that Punk really wants Hero. He says, it's not, it wasn't my hill to die on. I get it. They want the pretty guy. So here you got this tidbit of a story here too, where like Roman Reigns wasn't even supposed to get the spot that he was supposed to, that they ended up getting. Uh, at least if if CM Punk was to, to pick the three guys, they took uh, an indie darling like Chris Hero out of that slot. Um, so all, I, I all of that stuff. I think it's the wrong decision, though. Huh? I don't know if I think it's the wrong decision. I think that's not what I'm saying. Ultimately, but... the co- the company always churns ideas and redistributes them. Right. I've heard lots of guys complain. I came up with this idea. I pitched it to Creative for myself, and they gave it to somebody else. Yeah. And they're angry as hell about it. Yeah. But that's how the company is, and this happens a lot. And the company has to sustain itself. It's not in the business of CM Punk. It's in the business of WWE. Okay. And, and so to them, whether or if not they want to get Roman Reigns over, give him a good gimmick. Give him a good angle. Whether or not that's the right choice or not. I think you, you've, you've planted now just another thing in, in a pile of stories here about like what's going to make people A, resent WWE, and B, resent Roman Reigns, who yes. you're going to put all this effort and attention and resources into to make into a top star. So all that stuff happens in late 2014. Uh, the Punk interview, number one. The Vincent Austin interview, the next, the, the, you know, four days later, whatever it is. The second Punk interview. Everybody listening to that, you know, I think a lot of people thinking, well, it's just a podcast on the internet. What could it really matter? You got happening at the same time, the rising push of Roman Reigns. A lot of people kind of like resenting, a lot of fans kind of resenting Roman Reigns, but not really outright yet. But then Royal Rumble in Philadelphia in 2015 uh, happened and he was, you know, roundly booed. He went over, they brought out The Rock. He was still booed. Uh, and he's been booed ever since, uh, at least at TV tapings. Um, and and it's so confusing for uh, fans, too, because Punk is at the Rumble and then he leaves. He just literally packs up and leaves. And I think for a while there, everyone's like, what is going on? Why is this guy gone? And then out of all the right. silence, suddenly this giant podcast drops. Right. And out of the blue, like it's not even like one of these things where, you know, there's speculation leading up to it. It just happens. And then Punk was completely so, silent on Twitter, whereas he was very active before. And people were kind of just like checking his Twitter. Like he's still not saying anything. He's still not saying anything. What he's talking about hockey. He's not talking about wrestling. And uh, then yeah. finally, ten, after 10 months of silence, this podcast with all that pressure built up finally released. 
Absent makes the gro- absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah, and great, uh, great build. It was certainly certainly. I, I think that was the case. Is that it was a flood of stories and narratives, mm-hmm. and it was it was a discombobulated narrative. Right. It wasn't something simple like they did this thing wrong. I was angry. I left. It was here is all my grievances. Here is all my personal issues. Here's my take on this whole situation. And so I think what's interesting too is that it's very difficult to distill the podcast with single sentence and punk does not come off as bitter. He comes off as frustrated, fragile, maybe a little bit. Uh, but he, he's he, honest. I, I don't think he's truthful, but I think he's honest and, and truth in this case is more, I think the challenge of you're getting beat up and you're going city to city and you're not someone who sits there and, and obsessively reflects on the facts by writing them down and then committing them to memory, yeah. you're giving it off the cuff from your heart. And I think W and fact, a, I think he as a company listen to the podcast. It says a lot. You know, he's just a off the cuff from the heart, drive the stake through the uh, the issue. Yeah, and I think W as a company comes off as having a, a very dysfunctional culture, and the biggest decision makers, Vince and Triple H, come off very badly in, in this whole story. I think like the whole thing is kind of a a PR disaster for WWE that has never been, I think really appreciated by probably by the, the company itself enough. And I think it has a lot to do just revisiting this stuff, I guess is my final conclusion. Just like revisiting all this stuff. It, it just jumps out to me that, wow, this is, this played a big part in why there was such goodwill lost around this well, time. Almost, almost finished. Well, there was so much goodwill lost I, around this time and why Roman reigns, why why that 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 was triggered at that time that they tried to put Roman they tried to really coronate Roman Reigns and they weren't able to. I also wonder if this is around the time that WWE is internally really refocusing themselves from saying being customer focused to being business focused, where more and more it's like it doesn't we're we only get bad press when we go to the public and we try to win them over, so let's just make sure that our partners. Right. Care it, it, and it can't be us. us. It must be them. Let's spend yeah. that energy there. Right. Yeah. Because you don't see, you don't so much hear it as like, oh, George Barrios then got asked at the next investors conference. Well, CM Punk said all these terrible things about you. He was asked you know? about CM Punk on a conference call, though, and he said that he was, um, he's on a sabbatical when he was, according to CM Punk, he was actually suspended. I think that was Vince who said that, though. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Vince said he was on a sabbatical. You're right. You're right. He was asked. Punk yeah. claims at the time that he was suspended. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that this this is a hallmark and a milestone in the relationship between wrestling, wrestling media, wrestlers, and the growth and legality of WWE's empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it is worth mentioning. And I think even more than the pipe bomb promo in some ways, yeah. you could say that this had, had more ramifications. Yeah, I think it's similar in magnitude in terms of its, I don't know, historicalness or the the effect that it had on the wrestling industry. I think it's and, the most fascinating single episode of a podcast, uh, at least a wrestling podcast that I know of. I, you know, somebody asked me for a recommendation and I, I told them to listen to the, the Domino, the Cliff Compton episode where he goes to Nigeria mm-hmm. with, uh, Colt Cabana. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite, oh, like yeah. single episode stories. Mm-hmm. Um, 
of a podcast. But yeah, I agree with you. It's a, uh, it's enormously huge ramifications. And, uh, I, I think it's, it's, you can forget how big they are, uh, until you put them into perspective the way you and I have. And, and the fact that it's being, a, you know, there's a lawsuit around it, uh, says a lot, you know, <laughs> maybe the most, um, most controversial and impactful things oftentimes do have legal matters wrapped up inside them. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's helped kind of revive it. I, I imagine more people are thinking about this and re-listening to it now than ever before just because, uh, you know, it just doesn't die. It doesn't go yeah. away. But uh, I, as I've said here a couple times, I feel like Amon has a case. I, I'm not saying he's going to win. I'm not saying he's been able to show damage as well. Uh, but I do think that Amon has a case in the sense that people did immediately latch on to him after this story came out. And said that he was bad at his job, that that Punk was hurt because of his actions, mm. and that he doesn't deserve to work for WWE. And I can understand why someone would be offended and and uh, upset by that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, this trial will be over this week. I would be really surprised if it went on for another week after this. Um, I think the way it's been progressing now, the fact that plaintiffs have already rested, defense looks like they're close to resting, though AJ Styles... Or AJ Styles, AJ Mendez, AJ Lee might have to testify first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, a little bit of back and forth cross. And then those closing arguments, like I say, I think closing arguments is the biggest thing for us to uh, understand and uh, appreciate. You think, and if, uh, if I'm you, seeing when you here, go to Chicago, you gave me some time cues. You gave me 30 minutes in, 50 minutes in, and suddenly we're two hours in. Yeah. So I think our, our short little free podcast is going to be extra long this week. So all yeah. your listeners are lucky. You're getting the premium stuff. When, when you go to Chicago for All In and you try to go to the courthouse, do you think you'll get any information about what happened on day one, like a transcript or anything? Um, I think what I will be focused on will be uh, all of the... Uh, exhibits that are shown. I'm really curious to see any exhibits that they have in there with the exception of, I probably don't need the speedo. Um, and mm. what about the camel shorts? <laughs> maybe the camo shorts. Uh, the exhibits would be my focus. There could be testimony in there that has been typed up. I think some depositions would certainly be in there. Uh, whether or not the actual transcript of the trial was there. I don't know if that will show up or not. Um, it's I, I'm just not sure whether or not transcripts actually get, especially in this level of a case, though I'd assume there's somebody in there who is transcribing it. So it's possible. Uh, the challenge will also be just what can I do with the files? What will they allow me to touch? Is it just going to be I can only take pictures or can I actually take the documents out and scan them? Um, and then what will it cost to get it all pulled up together? And will it be many boxes or will it be, you know, let when I went to go get the Ventura trial, it was three giant banker boxes. Um, I don't know whether it will be like that, but my hope is yes, that that hopefully by then everything will be filed and everything will be available because who knows what they might try to seal or what they might try to withhold or just due to the incompetency of uh, the bureaucratic nature of Cook County, uh, what might just disappear and not be available at all. Yeah. So okay. I'm I'm very interested in that. Uh, you and I have kind of talked this to death and, and we're not even done with the trial yet. So no, I, we'll, I think we'll be talking about it more next week, I'm sure. Uh, but great, great insight there. And uh, I apologize for interrupting you earlier. Uh, this has been a fun discussion for us. You can find us at WrestleNomics on uh, Twitter. WrestleNomics at gmail.com is our email address. If you have a thought about an angle or a subject we didn't touch on here, we do a premium show every week. Go to patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. $5 a month. You get uh, a whole bunch of bonus audio, 
for $10 a month or $15 a month, you get even more access to the, all the files and, and information that we've been gathering. Uh, on the premium show, we're going to talk a lot about the Fox deal. We're going to talk about Deputy Executive, who uh, was named very prominently in a press release and is, is gone in kind of a, a, a flash of insanity. Talk a little bit about our learnings from our survey. And uh, there's a great documentary about Luke Harper. It's only 10 minutes long, but it's uh, uh, real insightful for me. And as a guy who uh, has known Luke for a long time, I would like to uh, talk a little bit about it. So we'll get into that and much more on the premium show. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to fill out our survey, tinyurl.com slash WR2018 survey, WrestleNomics Radio 2018 survey. And uh, your feedback helps us make this a better show. And hopefully it sounds better today. We're trying out some new recording techniques. Yeah. How can people sign up for the uh, premium show? P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WrestleNomics and uh, just become a subscriber there and uh, lots of good stuff. I've heard it's only $5 a month. What a deal. What a deal. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. There is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.